let's start the show. For Thursday, January 26th, 2017, welcome to This Is Only a Test, the official podcast of Tested.com. Jeremy's feeling the spirit. Mm. It's because we got we got the crew back together. You can picture the band playing that song if you try hard enough. Is there a band? Yeah. How many? How, one person band? I don't know. This guy on the bass that really knows that last note. That boom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I always think of it as a like a, a big drum, but I guess it's you're right. It's a bass. Uh, thanks everyone to, for joining this week. I am back back from vacation, and first of all, I want to say that you guys did an amazing job. Last week, good job, it Jeremy. One hundred percent perfect. No errors whatsoever. That's right. That's right. Let's, I'm being let's sincere. Move on. I listened to the episode <laughs> right. on my flight back. Yeah, and you guys sounded great. That's good, dude. I do want to give a shout out to all the people on YouTube that didn't narc on us. Thank you. Yeah, it was slightly out of focus, but you know, maybe people's vision isn't great. You're all very cool about yeah, it. Very cool. Wipe down your screens, butterfingers. Yeah, sorry. Um, about sorry but about I thought the episode was great, and the the whole time I was listening. I wanted to chime in. It was very difficult to get through the two hours without wanting to say something. Yeah, you're so used to it. You sit here, you hear our voices, you get that moment to jump in, and you couldn't. Couldn't. Couldn't do it. I was looking left and right, and I couldn't see anyone's faces. I closed my eyes and listened to it. And well, we'll give you 30 fine. seconds right now. <laughs> so this switch thing. Oh, right. Hold on. I mean, do you want to... <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> That's a new sound effect. Uh, did you pre-order it? I did pre-order the switch, and I'm 100% on Jeremy's side. Sorry, Kishore. Uh, I'm going to buy it for the Nintendo games. I'm going to encourage, uh, I'm going to support their wacky controller. I think the weird thing is that it's going to replace both the Wii U and the, the 3DS. Is there no dedicated console system, desktop, uh, set-top system, and uh, mobile system going forward? Is that consolidating everything in one bucket? Is that too much of a risk? Also, I'm really curious about the processing power. If the fidelity is going to be supposed to be on par with Nintendo Wii U, uh, then can the, and the NVIDIA custom Tegra X1 chip actually run Zelda at 60 FPS, uh, even when it's running at 720p, or you can actually get graphics parity. And also, since then, Wii U, they announced they would be closing the Wii U production, uh, and Zelda would be the last first-party game made for the Wii U. So that's right. Uh, that time to jump on board the Switch. That's all I got to say about so Switch. So what is backwards compatibility going to look like? I mean, obviously, it doesn't play anything. Yeah. But will I be able to download games that I own on the Wii U, do you think? Nintendo says they have they're not have not announced anything at the time, but you got to imagine that that's something that's going to happen. Because I want to sell my Wii U. I'm happy to sell it if I'm getting the new console. I just want, you know, I want to be able to play Super Mario uh, Brothers, you know, Wii or whatever the, the Wii U one is. I want to play those games. And and is it uh, is it going to be um, uh, multiplayer backward compatible? What do you mean? Like if someone buys Mario oh, 8. Oh, like right. they play on both. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I've seen more and more issues emerging about concerns about battery life. And Steve touched on that last week. Do you have concerns about that? No, that's the thing I'm actually not worried about because it's USB-C on both the dock and the controllers. Yeah, it's not going to work for flights, but Nintendo obviously doesn't care about people flying on airplanes because you need to be internet connected to play Super Mario Run. So, you know, two or three battery... uh, The fact is that you can use a generic USB power pack and power your... Your um, oh, your uh, your switch going forward, and that's something you couldn't do with the 3ds. All right. Anything else you want to say about our show last week? 
Been uh, the best. Great show. Yeah. It's good having Steve on. Yeah. It's great having Steve. I, I liked hearing about his ch- Japanese adventures. I wish he to- talked a little bit more about the the VR parks that he went to. We <gasps> saved the Pocky. Oh for my you. God, there's Pocky. He did bring goodies. Um, I've put it aside oh, until you got back. Crystal salty Pocky. That I have never seen crystal salty Pocky before. Crazy Kit Kat. So is yeah. that the Kit Kat that won't break? That breaks in the separate. Oh, it breaks. Doesn't go all the way in the middle. Yeah. What? This is perfect for it, the Lunar New Year. It's also. It's also quite subtle in its maple flavor. It's oh nice. yes, the 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 maple bread. Hmm. Fantastic. Well, thank you for that. Uh, I'm not going to eat it on the podcast. Uh, but what else did I miss? There's a few things that happened. We inaugurated a new president. The next day, we had the largest protest in American history. That's right. Uh, I uh, participated in a school-based protest against the transferring of a teacher at my school. So I've been participating in public meetings at the school district. I've uh, made signs with my child, like been in meetings everywhere, getting my protest spirit on. Oh, that might be me. Got to shut down Slack notifications. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've been totally, totally sick. Oh, sorry to hear that. Um, so I saw, definitely was aware of the protests. I regretfully was unable to participate um, on vacation. Uh, but did you guys go, and how, how was it? I supported my wife. She went downtown San Francisco, mm. uh, and she did she did the walk downtown. My wife was very fired up about it. She went to Oakland and to the San Francisco one, and I initially wasn't going to go. But I was just watching the news that day with my son, and he saw all the crowds, and he was like, he wanted to go. So we like hopped on public transport, went down there. He uh, wore a bunch of Spider-Man gear, yeah. made a sign that said, with great power comes great responsibility. That's Walked super cool. around. That's great. Yeah, well, I just watched my kids at home. Do you, you were watching it on TV? We were watching like CNN, uh, just like all the protests from uh, around the country. Got it. And he just got interested. Uh, I. It, San Francisco was challenging because it was raining a lot. Mm. I I had a really good experience. I it it felt um, uh, very welcoming, and you know, there's a lot of clever signs out there. I mean, the point is to time. to be heard, right? Of the, the, the protests and the that's the volume of people and get to get the media attention. Um, and but while you're there, were there moments that you have encounters that made you feel better connected and um, with the community? For me, it was just seeing how many other people were out there. I saw this group of people in San Francisco called Defend Science came out. They're all in lab coats, and they had all science messages on their signs, which to me is particularly uplifting, given you know, the areas that I'm interested in. Uh, but it was just great seeing that many people out there doing something together. You know, and uh, there was a lot of diversity in the people that I saw um, out there. Uh, And it was generally really happy. Most protests I've ever seen or been a part of have a real swell of like anger and resentment. This felt differently to me. It felt um, more palatable. Uh, I felt welcome to take my six-year-old. How about that? Hmm. Yeah, I I think really when you're just at home or just on a computer, it's really easy in today's climate to feel isolated and not connected. Um, and, you know, whether you, you people are in office or the people you supported or not, um, to feel like there's no no one else in the community, but being, you know, just reaching out and being among other people definitely helps. I don't know if it has, like, lasting impact or anything like else like that. That's for 
other podcasts to to pine over. But the you know part of the reason I went is like at least to my son, he saw so many people out there doing it. It felt historic in some way, shape, or form. So it, I'm I'm really glad it went. And it's fostered uh, maybe more more gatherings, more marches uh, in the coming months. So that, that's something definitely being uh, talked about and spread around in social media. Um, and so I, I don't think it's something that's going to stop with just this this one event. No, I'm already working with a group that's uh, working on a march for science in D.C. and in other cities around the, the country. So it's definitely spawned other um, protests. We'll see. have to wait and see to see how effective they are how effective that message is in reaching a broader audience. But at least for that day, 1% of the U.S. population was out on the streets. Well, the past week has given you guys a lot to march about. Oh, yeah, that's going to come up in the Science Minute. You know, (laughs) I know we don't aim to have a lot of political conversations on here. This week has to be a little bit different for Moment of Science. Oh, absolutely. So if if anyone, like, doesn't want to hear that, you know, I'll put timestamps there. You can skip it. But... We have to talk about it. Hey, I think echo chamber is part of the problem. I, you know, I encourage everyone to keep listening. A lot of people are saying, you know, unsubscribe to POTUS, at POTUS on Twitter, and, I was, and now subscribe to Barack. And I said, let's subscribe to both. Let's keep our ears open. we got to, you know, keep our ear to the ground to keep all the information in. So while I didn't have the opportunity to march in a large crowd, uh, I did get my steps in this past week, and uh, I racked up over 20,000 steps a day. So remind us where you were. Um, so this past week on vacation, uh, Danica and I went for our very first time um, to Disney World. Now, this was our mini moon, mini as in Minnie Mouse. And Do yourself a favor and don't even what associate you, the word moon to this. What did you just say? Mini moon? Mini moon. Is that a thing? No. Okay. We just made it up. All right. Like, there's right. a honeymoon yeah, yeah. and there's a mini moon. <laughs> With you. Okay. Uh, so... I've never been to Disney World, but we make we don't hide the fact that we're big Disney fans. We, me and Danica, and I think you too, Jeremy. Right, you're the people in this room can appreciate Disney. I know there's a lot of people who who maybe don't like the crowds. I know Adam doesn't like the crowds for sure, but they don't see a lot of purpose in going to amusement parks or theme parks. Uh, I love the theme park experience. There's all there's a lot of sides to liking Disney. I think if you tell a non-Disney fan that you're you like Disney, they might just think, oh, you like the Disney movies. Right. You, you're like you like stuffed animals. Well, there's actually a lot of sides to it if you start to look at the Imagineering and you think about the engineering and the thought and the creativity and the, the, the philosophy behind customer service. There's a lot of angles that are, I find interesting. Let me put in a little extra weight here. So my family is talking about our big Christmas trip together, like my big extended family. And I'm trying to argue for Disney World this year. Wow. And I haven't been to Disney World since I was a teenager, like 15 or so. Me too. And uh, my kid hasn't been to any of the Disney. He's a pure Disney virgin. Um, So I'm going to listen to this explanation as a convince me that we should go to Disney World. Well, I would say that, you know, how old is your kid? Six. Six. I think six is a great age. So maybe just go to Disneyland first. Disney World may be a little overwhelming. And I know kids have a lot of energy, but I was burned out by six days of going to all these parks. Um, Let's get the details. Where'd you yeah. go? So Give us the overarching list of all the parks you went to. Oh, so um, it was also my first time going to Disney World. Walt Disney World. And I'm even repping the sweater today, the Epcot sweater. 
Um, and you know, Will talked. I heard from everyone like Will and Jeremy about Disney World being massive, right? Everyone says You're, you may have gone to Disneyland, you may have been to Universal Studios Hollywood, but nothing's going to prepare you for the scale of Disney World. It's the size of a city, and it really is. Like this Disney World is a compound. Is the best way to think about it. Where within the perimeter is 50 square miles. That's the amount of square space, square footage as San Francisco, the peninsula. But that's not all park. Of course, uh, most of it is just greenery, foliage. It's it's um, it's trees, forests, uh, and roads. And you can't. It's not like you're walking in a city from place to place. The only places you're walking are within the resorts and the actual theme parks themselves. So when you think of Disneyland in Anaheim, um, there are two theme parks there. There's Disneyland and also a California Adventure next to each other. In Disney World, there are four theme parks. There's uh, the equivalent of Disneyland, which is Magic Kingdom. Then there's also um, Animal Kingdom, which is like a Disney version of a zoo, but not like San Diego Zoo. And then there's Epcot. Uh, and then there's uh, Hollywood Studios, which is like uh, California Adventure. And some are bigger than others. Some you call them like maybe half-day parks. You maybe do everything you want to do in, in one day. And some... Um, you would need to spend a couple of days there to really do and maximize everything. But also within the compound, additions to the four parks are 18 resorts. So in Anaheim, there are two Disney... I went on a deep dive, by the way, because uh, I went with people who worked for Disney, and they gave me the information. I was like, curiosity the whole time, asking questions about everything. Um, uh, Disneyland has two hotel resorts. It's surrounded by a bunch of third-party hotels and other things, but there's Disneyland Hotel and there's the um, California Adventure, uh, Grand, Cal Grand Californian. Disney World has 18 hotel resorts on its property, which is insane. And did you stay at one? We did. So we stayed at one of the, the budget ones. It was called Pop Century, and it's it's themed to have like uh, the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 90s, um, and it was a fine experience. Some of them are super upscale. Too. Some are, like, yeah. They range all the way to like five-star experiences. You can have the whole Polynesian Hotel uh, hut on top of water experience within in Florida, basically, and make it feel like you're, you know, uh, in, in Fiji. Uh, or you could have there's a, there's a whole boardwalk that's recreated, almost like a boardwalk empire boardwalk that's part of their boardwalk resort. Uh, but that's not part of any park. It's just you can drive in there, you can stay there, and you can have your meals there and go to the restaurants there and shop there. Um, so we stayed at a resort, We but we did go between the different resorts because I was really curious to see how they were built out. And the big word that I'm going to use um, when talking about the, the trip is theming. Uh, theming is my favorite part of... Um, of the Disney experience, I guess you'd call it. Why I would go to a Disneyland park, why I go to the resort, why I even make the, the effort in the first place. And that's the set dressing, how they how they decorate, design, and build facilities and structures and decor to look like certain eras or certain worlds, uh, whether it's on a specific amusement ride or in just the facade of a building. And the theming at Disney World is incredible. So... Um, and that includes, you know, building out the, their castle in the middle of Magic Kingdom. But like, if, you, if anyone's been to Disneyland, uh, the the layout of Disneyland is very much like the layout of Magic Kingdom. You walk in, you see a big castle in the middle. There are different castles, uh, but on the right is Tomorrowland, on the left is Adventureland. Uh, so it was very much like walking into a parallel universe. This is the closest I would feel like because I knew where everything was, but there were some things that weren't. There. I knew Space Mountain would be on the right, but there wasn't Star Tours there. 
because Star Tours is at Hollywood Studios. I knew on the left there would be, you know, um, the Tiki Hut, and also my, you know, you get the, uh, you get some Dole Whip on the left. Uh, you know, you go down Main Street, so it had very familiar aspects, but dole it was also whip. Dole Whip, Whip, Whip. whip. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at Disney World, side note, you can also get alcohol, which you can't mm-hmm. get at Anaheim's Disneyland. So they they really encourage parents and adults huh. to buy your uh, your alcoholic beverages. Um, so it, it was like it was like a, a, a parallel universe Magic Kingdom. You can, um, you can get alcohol in the private club. At you Disneyland. can Club Thirty Three. You don't have a membership. No, I don't right. have a membership. Never been. Yeah. Did you have a favorite, you know, park or area oh, that God. you saw? Okay, so four parks. We did each park one day, and then we also went to Universal Studios, which is a whole separate conversation. And then we revisited some parks, and the parks we revisited were Epcot. So again, I'll go through the four ones. Uh, there's Magic Kingdom, which is very much like Disneyland, minus some of the rides. Some of the rides are a little different. Everything's a little more spaced out because they just have the space. If you're going to build out, um, you know, in I think it was 1970s when they when they built Disney World, um, if you're going to build out Disneyland in Florida, everything is kind of like 1.2 size scale because mm. they, they have larger, longer sidewalks, longer streets, just to make it feel less crowded. And also, Kishore, for your planning purposes, uh, don't go during the holidays. We went during the best time, which is right after the holidays. I know it's going to be insanely crowded. Like, there's no true down season anymore is what people tell me. Like, was it still pretty crowded? It even? was perfect. Uh, weather was perfect. We only had one rainy day, and it was really, uh, it felt empty to be knowing how packed Disneyland usually is. Um, so Disney, Magic Kingdom, I thought it was great, but it was one of those just get you get it done, see the see their version of the thing you're familiar with in Anaheim. Uh, and, but it was really those three other parks that were interesting. Hollywood Studios maybe a little less interesting because that one was very much California Adventure, and I, you know we live in California. I've been to real Hollywood, so they had their you know Man's Chinese Theater replica. You had your Star Tours, your Tower of Terror, which they've closed down in um, Disneyland now because they're building the Guardians that's of the Galaxy. Where, that's not where they have a lot of the Star Wars stuff. though. They do. They had a whole Star Wars area. Uh, Hollywood Studios, they're always building stuff. So Hollywood Studios felt less crowded because there was a whole section that was going to be their Star Wars land. And that was still under construction, of course. So they filled out a lot of Star Wars theming uh, around the park to instead of that because we have Rogue One and Force Awakens which came out. So you know, they had marches for the First Order. You had Phasma. You had your shows. Star Tours was, of course, there. Did you, did you fight uh, Darth Vader? I did not do Jedi Training Academy. I'm a little, little too old for that. Uh, You're a, never too old for Jedi Training Academy. Uh, there was a museum of props. So they had uh, helmets. Um, they had uh, ship miniatures, ships. Uh, some things that I love is they had these Force Order Stormtroopers walking around, and they don't stop for pictures. They just walk and march as if they're patrolling. But I walked into one of the... Um, one of the rooms with the props, and it was really empty, which I thought was kind of sad. Like, why don't people appreciate the helmets and the props and the lightsabers here and the costumes? It was empty, and I realized it was empty because this is where one of the shows emptied into, oh. right? Like, there were doors that would open up every half hour, and mm-hmm. people would leave. But we were looking at the props, and these First Order Stormtroopers walked in, and one of them then walked into, like, an alcove and just stood still, and one of them stood still in the middle of the room. And then the doors opened, and people walked out, and they're like, oh, great show, great show. Ooh, costumes and props. And they would look around. Oh, look, stormtroopers. And take pictures. And then it would took like two minutes before they started moving. 
and people then realized they weren't statues, they were real people. So it's nice little surprise and delight yep. for, for the fans. Uh, the videos I've seen of the stormtroopers, they don't talk with using their nor- their normal voice. Did you see these guys talk at all? They didn't talk at all. Um, most characters don't talk. Yeah. But the stormtroopers actually have sound boxes. They do. So they can Interesting. they can emit pre-recorded stormtrooper you know, phrases. So it's not what like the five hundred first do with the uh, voice no. modulators. No. It's just pre-recorded things. Yeah. And like when when there are marches and pre-planned like parade type events, they'll have speakers, and so it's all scripted pre prescripted actions and, and sounds. Um, Hollywood Studios, I thought, was really fun because they had a lot of stuff uh, paying tribute to classic movies in the form of animatronics. And so um, I like that, but it's it really a half-day park. Animal Kingdom was a complete surprise. I really enjoyed it. Uh, had probably the most theming of any of the parks. And it's maybe one of those things like, you can, you can feel two ways about it. You can feel like, okay, they Disney-fied the zoo experience. Right. But isn't it a, it's a zoo with more space. It's like closer to a wild safari type park. There is a reserve there, a pr- preserve, uh, where you know they have a ton of different animals. And there is a safari ride you can go on, but it's not like when you think of a safari ride, like driving off miles into a preserve and then sightseeing. The safari ride is basically a theme park ride where you get into a car. And the car does drive through the preserve, but it's predetermined sections and they put the food close to where the tracks are, so the animals will get relatively close. You're guaranteed to see some of the animals. So it does feel a little bit more artificial, but the zoological experience is artificial. You're still seeing animals not in their natural habitat. So um, how else is the zoo experience disney Well, the fact that it's on a, the, the tr- it's on a track. It's like they designed the course much uh, yeah. like they would. You mean the safari version. Right, the safari version. What else about the zoo? So... They actually have theme park rides. They have a Mount Everest section. What? Yeah, they have a Mount Everest ride, and they theme the whole area like like Nepal with flags and shops. Mm-hmm. And you know, they go to great length to say, you know, the Imagineers did go to Nepal, and they actually had tour guides give them um, direction on the artistic direction. They built some things there and then brought it back to the Animal Kingdom and reconstructed the buildings. But it was actually made over there. Um, but it's. Like everything you'd find in in Disneyland, like when they show parts of the world, like you're you're getting the Disney version of a world tour. Like people don't go there to say, "I went to China and I went to Paris." Uh, it's not quite like going to Las Vegas, where you say, "There's Paris, Las Vegas," but it's it's a version of that, right? Like it's, it's theming. You're getting the spirit and some of the the gestalt of what that country or that culture has to offer, but through the Disneyland, it's still through amusement, right? It's like the the video game version of that. Um, what else was that Animal Kingdom? Uh, they had a whole dinosaur park. So you know, di- do you remember Disney had that movie Dinosaur? Yeah, it was a CG movie with CG CG characters in front of live action backgrounds. And so when that movie came out, and this I think it was like pre Pixar even uh, when they pre merger, they um, they have a whole section of the Animal Kingdom was de- de- dedicated to dinosaurs, and they have a dinosaur ride. I know it's not in the zoo, it's not the zoo experience. It's not San Diego Zoo, which itself is like a Disney sized park. Uh, so it's but there are like I see they have tigers. You walk through. You know I think they did a good job merging the zoo experience with the the educational part of a zoo experience with the entertainment part of a Disney park experience. Uh, one thing that I thought was really interesting and fascinating from a theming and construction standpoint is. In the Animal Kingdom, they have a mini park in the park, and the mini park is themed to be like a touring carnival. You know, like a 
like a like yeah. a carnival f- that gets set up sure. um, in a parking lot, right? Where they mm. put rides, uh, carousel rides, and games of chance, and and um, mini roller coasters, and themed to the extent where even the parking lot that this park resides on is fake, and has fake cracks, and they built a fake parking lot to put the okay. carnival rides on. Well, did they just use typical carnival rides? No, well? they're they're more better integrated. Okay. But everything is fake. Like none none of it's made to be able to move. Like yeah. move from town to town, but it looks it like looks, they deployed it. It's weird. Yeah, okay. so that's how they far how far they go with the theming. It's like oh, I'm walking through a park and suddenly, oh look, the circus is in town. Yeah, the local carnival's in town. Let's ride these rides. It's Americana. Yeah, um, dinosaur came out in 2000. Oh, uh, 2000. Um, so that was after. Yeah, well, uh, okay, it wasn't very good. How about how about Epcot? Yeah, so I'm saving that for last. So Epcot was my favorite, and Epcot, um. I think I was both disappointed and also really surprised by Epcot. I never understood the fact that Epcot was a theme park. I always thought it was like a conceptual, like one building. And it was, it, when you think Epcot, you think that golf ball, the geodesic dome, right? And I but you have like, all those like lands around it, all the different countries. And yeah. that's the part I didn't completely know about at all. So Epcot stands for, uh, what is it? Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow, I want to say. I didn't even know it was an acronym. Yeah. Um, but the Epcot part of the uh, the community prototype community tomorrow part of the park doesn't feel like a community at all. It just feels like a really spaced out like set of uh, attractions. And but the attractions themselves were fantastic. So that big sphere, the geodesic sphere, is a ride. And inside, you ride through. Um, they call it Spaceship Earth, but you ride through an animatronics a show of the history of communication, because it was previously sponsored, I think, by AT&T, uh, but now it's sponsored by uh, Siemens. And so you sit on the ride, you actually go inside the sphere, go around very slowly, and you have Judy Dench narrate the history of human communication from um, you know writing on papyrus to uh, the Phoenicians who created the alphabet to uh, all the way to you know a, a Wozniak-type character building in the garage, um, which I love. And then there's a ride that um, that Ellen and Bill Nye did back in the 90s. And it was amazing because it was a both ride but also a show. So you would go in and you'd sit in this lobby and you'd have this giant four-screen, widescreen projected effect, like a movie that they filmed, and you'd walk from screen to screen um, and tell this whole scripted story. And then you get on a ride and then it takes you through – uh, like energy generation. How does the technology of this ride hold up? So that's the thing that I really wanted to get into is the technology of the rides. Um, let, me, let me think about the best way to talk about this. There are a lot of different kinds of rides, right? When Disney, when Disneyland was first created, the type of ride that kind of endures through Disney is the, it's called the dark ride. And you think of a show like Pirates of the Caribbean or even Peter Pan, um, or even shows that are or attractions that are like Universal Studios, like E.T., those are dark rides in the sense that you have these buildings and they're all dark, they're specifically lit, and you have carriages and carts that go through and travel through on, on a conveyor belt from room to room to room. And those dark rides are the staple of, of Disney. They're different from roller coasters, which... Um, which are like uh, Thunder Mountain or, uh, or uh, 
um, the Matterhorn, uh, roller coaster type rides. Space Mountain. Uh, Space Mountain, um, and different from shows. So there are also shows which are like, uh, like what would be considered a, um, a ride show, like the Terminator Two show at Universal Studios or um, Captain EO. Yeah, is like a show. It's a movie. Right. It's it's basically a movie. Sometimes with live elements that come in or yeah. 3D classes or 4D effects, and Disney's really. They, they, I think they perfected the dark ride a long time ago. And the technologies that were in those dark rides, the animatronics, they hold up because they're physical, tangible objects. You have r- rides, and they, they hold up in a different way. Like, obviously, the people who wrote the uh, Carousel of Progress that Walt Disney worked on that was unveiled in 1964 World's Fair, um, those animatronics back then in the 60s, you probably were in all of them in a different way than you're, I'm in all of them today. Like I appreciate like the animation that goes in animatronics. Different attraction companies and different parks have moved on from the dark ride. So Harry Potter, the ride at Universal Studios, was probably the most technically technologically advanced ride I've ever ridden, and incredibly impressive. It, it combines the elements of a dark ride of, with a show, and uh, and modern technology. And so, so you're like interacting with like characters that are you know no you're still it's still technically a dark ride but what they did in um and it started with the amazing spider-man ride which debuted at universal studios in i want to say the early 90s i remember hearing about this ride i'd never seen it i still haven't seen it but people were saying this was a this was a new leap forward in three-dimensional ride experience yeah so if you talk about um you think about like the most basic dark ride is pirates of the caribbean Right, you're sitting on a boat. Yeah. The boat rides along a track. I'm gonna say it, from it's, it's a small world is the most basic. Yes, right, and it's, it's a small world has it, but they're they're variants of the same thing on a track, on a very, uh, a very comfortable ride, right, and you're seeing shows from room to room. Yeah, you get that concept, right? For the next step up for that is to incorporate maybe a little bit more. I guess uh, Parrots of Caribbean is, is a step up from that because has a little bit more of a thrill, because there is there are parts where you. Um, Drop. You drop a little bit, right? And it's on water also. Um, and then you go from there to the more thrilling rides, like the roller coaster ones. So like Big Thunder Mountain is a good example of that, where there are parts where they're showing you scenes, but then it really jumps into a, like a roller coaster type experience. Uh, and then there are shows, like the, the 3D shows I talked about, like Terminator, where you put on 3D glasses and they play a movie and then there's some interactive elements where uh, people come up on stage. So what... Universal did with the Spider-Man ride. Um, and I would say the peak of the, the dark ride is maybe the um, Indiana Jones, which people love. Have you ever written that Indiana yeah, Jones ride? Where, yeah. where it has the roller coaster elements because it looks like you're in a car and there's great storytelling, but it really is effectively a dark ride. You're going from room to room, learning the story, and you have complex animatronics and effects like blowing of the darts uh, that get you immersed. Um, but you're on the track. Everyone gets the, that same experience, and there's only so much you could do within the physical co- confines of a roller coaster track and the space you have to build the scenes. Mm-hmm. So what Spider-Man did, and Spider-Man was actually uh, done by Imagineers who were who left Disney or maybe were let go after in, in the 80s and early 90s, is they started incorporate combining the screen the um, the screen effect, uh, putting screens with dark rides. So uh, Back to the Future is a good example of this. The Back to the Future ride, which was basically, it's a uh, emotion simulator ride. Do you ever ride that, Jeremy? Where is it? 
it wasn't was universal universal orlando like you would cu- you would be in a delorean and there would be three delorean side by side and like you'd sort of like lift up and you were all together but it was really hard to see the other deloreans and there was like kind of a dome IMAX screen dome. imax dome above you yeah. that you'd be watching sort of a progression and there was like a couple interactive elements. Hmm. So those are motion simulators. Yep. I mean, when we think of simulator rides, um, you think of you're in a cockpit, you're in some type of vehicle and that vehicle is being motion controlled. Star Tours. Uh, Star Tours, exactly. Um, and, but Star Tours, it's like each vessel, each ship is its own simulator. Back to the Future was different in that you had an array, you, you, put, you could put six cars on the same motion similar system, but they could all be sharing one giant IMAX screen. Hmm. And that increases your field of view because you can look through. And if you really peered, like lean forward, you could see the other cars moving, but you're all sharing that same screen. Yeah. But it's a more immersive because even w- with or without 3D glasses, you have a much larger screen surrounding you. Yeah. The Star Trek ride was similar to that in that they put screens above and to the side of you. Hmm. So what... Spider-Man did. What did Spider-Man do? <laughs> it combined both those things. It was a dark ride in a sense that you, you were on a track, and a car on a track, but you would see a scene, but this, this you know, you'd be go through um, the uh, New York, right? It'd be uh, from, um, being sent out uh, from the Daily Bugle. And, uh, and then you would transition from a practical set along the ride to a screen. Uh-huh. 3D? If, and the screen would be 3D because yeah. you'd be wearing 3D glasses. Okay. And the innovation they did, if you think about logically why a 3D screen would not work along a ride, and that's because of parallax. Yep. The parallax effect. I'm with you. Like if I'm sitting in front of a, um, if you're watching Avatar, any 3D movie in a theater, you're not moving, you're, sta- you're sitting still. And even when you're on the Back to the Future ride, you're, you're sitting relatively still, you're rotating, but there's no lateral movement, right? What happens when you incorporate lateral movement with a 3D screen, you get a weird parallax effect where the background shifts relative to the foreground and and, and it doesn't work, yep. right? So the invention that they, they work on, and Universal has a patent on this, hmm. is they invented a technique called squinching. And because the rides are still pre they're not user controlled they're pre-designed they knew the perspective of everyone on every seat in that ride and so they calculated that and re-rendered their 3d projection effect to compensate for the lateral movements of the simulator now i want to see this and so it looks like even though you're moving alongside the screen yeah the 3d effect looks like it's really it's stable and it's right there mm-hmm. the whole time i like it but if you were able to watch it just not moving, then it would be shifting. You would see the background shifting uh, left to right or right to left or up to down. But they did, a, they did it so seamlessly, the combining of the practical sets, dark ride sets, with the simulator screen effects um, that becomes effectively Star Tours, but you're going through practical sets and then being thrown off a building and then driving through a city, and the, th- the driving part is, is a, it's just a 3D screen, and it feels completely believable. Um, but you're it, saying Harry Potter one-upped even this? Yes. Hmm. So the Spider-Man ride has won the, uh, I, I forget what the name of the award is, but they, there's an awards for amusement park rides, and it's won Best Dark Ride 12 years in a row until t- 2010 when Harry Potter came out. 
and Harry Potter one upped it. One by just lavishly building those practical sets to be even more lavish. It's you're not on the ground. You're you're suspended, and there's like whole buildings that you're actually flying through. Um, but by the control system that your car is in. So the Spider-Man ride, your car, your carriage is still on a on a track, and it moves along the track like a, a race car track, and it swivels, it turns, and it gives you like some little bit of thrust. And they do the same thing with the Transformers ride. Harry Potter, every car is on a robot arm with six degrees of freedom. Okay, wow. robot arm. Think of like the the like uh, those mm-hmm. also on wheels. No. The, the, the robot arm itself is on wheels. That's what I mean. So yeah. you, you are still moving along a track. Yeah, the robot arm itself That's moves along the track, wow. and but then gives you six degrees of rotation Jeez. and lateral movement where it can move you close to a practical effect, pull you back when you move a screen. And when you move, uh, the other animation they did was that the screen, when it goes between uh, simulator screen scenes and practical scenes, that screen is tied to each car. The screen itself also moves along with you. And hmm. so you never see the edges of it. Wow. Yeah. So um, did you know this before you got on the ride? No. So no. all this, you were shocked. By shocked. It. I wrote, I, I did it several times, read the Wikipedia pages while in line. Just like, how <laughs> could they do this? This is mind blowing. Well, so this is a universal though. This that's is universal. not a Disneyland right? and that's, or Disney World. And, and so when people ask me, like, what was your favorite thing? Like from a technological standpoint, yeah. Like you know, Universal I think has Disney beat. Do you know if if this if um Universal California has that ride or not? They do have the Harry Potter one because I know they just opened the Harry Potter Land and they have that ride. They do have that ride. They do have that ah, ride. score. I've oh, heard yeah. disappointing things about the California version of Harry Potter Land oh. that it's smaller. Um, so and it's just compacted. Diagon Alley is only in in Florida. Yeah. So, but Universal has the patent for that technology. Yeah. Right. Uh, Disney, I think they are really proud of their tradition of. And audio animatronics. They invented the audio animatronic, and they invented that type of perfected, I think, perfected dark ride. What Disney is really embracing now is how do you create these animatronic performers, like you're from your Small World to your Jack Sparrows and Pirates of the Caribbean, but bring it to a modern age. And what they're doing now is projection mapping. And so from the uh, uh, Snow White ride or the Cars ride mm-hmm. uh, to now their new big one is Frozen. Um, they have audio animatronics, like moving characters, but their faces and it are internally projected with Pico projectors. So you get yeah. actual facial animation. They've been doing that ever since Haunted Mansion, you know, where they would take these recessed sculptures of faces and then project mm-hmm. fa- um, pr- images onto them, and they would look like they're watching you because the way that the recession yeah. of optical illusion happens. Yeah, I think it's it's really effective, and it's really it, it's it brings to life animated characters. Uh, in a really impressive way, and I think it's really convincing. Yeah, I don't think it will stand to the test of time. Why not? The same way that a actual animatronic, actual physical, wholly physical animatronic will. This, I mean, and again, I like the nostalgia of those old. Exactly. I, I know that the way I'm appreciating the audio animatronics today are not the same way that someone in the '60s appreciated Lincoln. That to them was like the hugest invention ever. But I don't think going forward, 30 years from now, someone's going to appreciate the projection mapped Frozen character the same way that I'm appreciating Abe Lincoln audio animatronic. I don't know. I kind of disagree with you on that one. I think that until it becomes fully holographic, we will still be at a point where people can look and appreciate actual animatronics and robotics. And if you're just kind of augmenting that with 
elements of projection mapping. I but think it's that, too I think much. That, I think it's too much augmenting because I don't think it's perfect. I think the contrast on the faces is a little. It's like you remember in the movie AI. Yeah. How um, when they go to the um, the flesh fair, right? Where uh, they they go and um, Teddy, you know, they, they it's the place where the humans torture the robots and they pit them against each other and it's like basically a monster mm-hmm. truck rally. Yeah. And you have all these like history of old robots kind of like in prison, mm-hmm. right? And some were more human than others. And there was one that was like the TV screen face. Right. And you're like, oh, okay, yeah, for, for a generation, that makes sense. They thought that would work. And then they went back to more, like this feels like, oh, the TV screen on the face. Yeah. Well, we'll see. A little bit. Uh, there's a great Wired article from all the way back in 99 that talks about the uh, squinching technology, the origin of it, and how that made its way into Amazing Spider-Man. And uh, there's a good Gizmodo article about the Harry Potter land, uh, oh. uh, uh, how that works, yeah. including a diagram, Jeremy, if you'd like to see. There's a diagram of how the screen actually is I thought is that located. was 5.1 headphones. <laughs> um, uh, I'll put those links in the show notes for I think people that are really interested. Universal all really went all out with their Harry Potter theming. And I think there's, again, two ways to think about it. One, for people who are hardcore Harry Potter fans, uh, they're going to get this, like, a billion-dollar theme park that's made catered to them, where they get to see Hogwarts, and they get to be in the world of Harry Potter and Diagon Alley and drink butterbeer, like, built out as if it was the movie set and with surprise and delights everywhere. But at the same time, I think it lacks that that evergreen uh, timelessness that Tomorrowland and Frontierland and Ventureland have at Disneyland. And maybe it's unfortunate that Disney is really embracing its branded areas where you know you have you're going to have Star Wars Land. And yeah, I, I'm glad they're spending a ton of money building out of Star Wars Land. I know it's a direct response to Harry Potter Land, um, but I hope that doesn't take away from. Tomorrowland. I suspect you could fill the rest of this podcast talking about your your trip. I could. Uh, just a couple couple quick hitter questions. Yes. Are you a Ravenclaw? Like I suspect. You know that's what Danica su- suspected as well. Turns out I'm Gryffindor. I was surprised no, you're too. Not. I know. I, I I read the description. I'm like, no, I'm Ravenclaw. But I answered the question. <laughs> Sorting hat it's is what broken. the hat gave me. Maybe they resorted. And Danica, who is she? Oh, she's a Gryffindor. We are House United. How about that? Yeah. Well. That um, seems appropriate. The Universal ride for um, for the new Harry Potter ride, like there are two Harry Potter areas b- between the two parks because there's just like California Adventure and Disneyland. There's I know one for Muggles, one for Wizards. <laughs> well, they have one for one for Universal Studios and one for Islands of Adventure, whatever you call it. One's Hogsmeade and one's uh, Diagon Alley. Uh, they are connected by a train, so you actually ride the train at nine and three quarters at nine and three quarters you go through the wall in a fake london subway system the train between the two parks is itself an attraction um and the theming i saw the best uh the best uh pepper's ghost i've ever seen like a look like a holographic person standing in a, a practical set wow yeah john cleese walking around as a ghost um Anything else you want to talk about before we dive into pop culture news? Oh, God. Uh, the Magic Band system, they spent a billion dollars on that, and it totally works for, for at Disney. This is their RFID band system. Um, what? So Band? Yeah, oh, you, the you wear thing. the band. I, I thought you meant like a musical band. Oh, no, no, no. Right, the, right. The, 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 that's was Yeah, no tickets anymore for anything. Yeah. Um, and, and they use that for the Fast Pass system. They right? use for everything, for right. food, Fast Pass, 
and it, it's. Did brilliant. you like it? Yeah. God, the metrics they get off that. I know. The whole time, I'm like, they know when I left my hotel room. They know. They know everything about you. Yeah, they know traffic flow. They can zoom out and look at a bunch of people, yeah. so they can correct that in the future. Fascinating. I think it's it's probably coming to Disneyland soon. Um, but I was really curious if you liked that experience of not having a wallet. Essentially, I did. I did. Especially if drinking around the world. So the thing we did on the last day was the other part of Epcot is a 11 countries around the world gets get represented uh, in the other half of Epcot. And they all serve, they all have restaurants and they all serve alcohol. So the traditional thing is to go from Canada all the way to Mexico uh, from one side to the other and you get a drink at every country. And we got a drink at every country and, and then you get your bill the next day. You're like, what? I spent this much? And yeah. Yeah, you pay the Disney tax. Everything's like twenty percent more than, than normal. Um, I'm gonna save my last bit of Disney for the VR minute, but remind me to talk about uh, Circle Vision. Okay. You want to talk about this last point? I don't. I didn't write this on here. What's this about a Warriors game? Oh, I uh, also went intended a Warriors game. I just want to let you oh, versus know. the Orlando Magic. Yeah, it was one of those prof- perfect coincidences. Where they played there. They played there while I was there, and during dinner, I'm like, oh, what's going on with the Warriors? They're playing the magic. That's great. Magic. Wait a minute. That's Orlando. I'm there now. And so we watched the game. Nice. That is nice. And now I will unmute and play the next song. All right, this is the deepest into the podcast this segment is. I'm ever so been. sorry. No, it, it's fine, but we're going to have to pick up the pace a little bit. Though, one of the biggest pop culture news items of the year was revealed this week, the title for episode eight. Star Wars in red, The Last Jedi. Is it The Last Jedi or Last Jedi plural? Well, Jedi, Jedi is. is yeah, I know, that's what plural. I'm saying. Yeah, so th- that's the good question. Uh, I think... Uh, I think it needs to be sing- it's singular because it wouldn't be last. Oh. So if you, you think of it two ways, if you if it's if it's the last Jedi singular, then it's talking about they found the last person, and also in a and I believe in a crawl for the last movie, they identify Luke as the last Jedi. This is uh, true. But if you think of the last Jedi as plural, then it's really depressing because it means that Luke and whoever he teams up with, whether it's Rey and whoever, they are the last Jedi. Unless there are Jedi we don't know about that Luke are in league with. I have to come out and say I was disappointed at the title because it implies a Luke-centered movie. And I was always hoping that we'd just get new characters and the majority of focus would be on new characters. Now, this is all like, you know, speculation speculation on my part. But I'm ho- I still I want Ray to be the center and and Finn and all all of the new characters. And even some ones that we haven't met yet. And hearing from Ryan Johnson and all the other people involved that this is a weird movie. Do you keep hearing that too? Yeah, no, I haven't heard it's a weird movie. I heard it's going to be great. No, no, but like they totally, they, it's totally, not going to be a typical Star Wars movie. Mm. I'm excited for that. I'm really excited about that. I mean, yeah. was Empire a typical Star Wars movie? At that time, no. <laughs> I guess when you only have one, there's no know. such thing as typical. I mean, you, you know the Yoda quote, his dying words, when gone am I, the last of the Jedi you will be. I think that's what this is a reference must, must yeah. be to, right? Ah. So basically, Star Wars, 
Luke Skywalker. I'm down. What? I wanted I wanted Luke in the first one. Mm-hmm. We all knew Mark Hamill was had dressed up, grown a beard. He's going to be in the first movie. He lost all that weight. We got five seconds. Yeah. I'm down. I'm f- fine. Bring it. Everyone's worried he's going to die, though. I'm, I mean, whatever. If he dies, I'm sure it'll be wonderful. Here's what I hope. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that they don't actually make him the last Jedi in the, the series. Ever? The, ever. No. And, and incorporate and introduce a new type of Force-sensitive class of character. Force-sensitive robot? Ooh, yeah, yeah Force-sensitive droids. Yeah, seriously, like... Droids. We have some AI news coming up during the oh sure scientific minute. Um, now you had something to reveal to Jeremy. Oh, let's see if Jeremy knows this. Okay, put the titles of the of seven and eight together. Uh, okay, so we have the Force Awakens, the Last Jedi. What about that? <laughs> Think about that. <laughs> what are you saying? That, that means Episode Nine is going to be from a nap. Star Wars Episode Nine from a nap. <laughs> is that really the punchline of this whole thing? I don't. <laughs> no, but the, the the speculation is that all yeah. the titles string together. No, The Force Awakens, The Last Jedi. Something you could finish that sentence a billion different ways. Uh huh. A New Hope. Or no, it doesn't work. Doesn't <laughs> work. <laughs> a New Hope Empire Strikes Back. But it would give uh, it would give new meaning to The Force Awakens. Uh, you know, whatever. I'm I'm excited. I think it's a great title. God, after all the prequel titles, every one was like, oh, they'll do better the next time. Revenge of the Sith. Call back. Phantom Menace. Nope. Nope. Revenge of the Sith was a good no. name. Nope. No, I think the only bad ones Why? are Attack of the Clones. <laughs> no, because there were no clones in that movie, basically. <laughs> yeah, there were. And it also, didn't really attack- do much attacking. It, it, yeah, exactly. That sounded more like a '50s, like a retro sci-fi f- movie. Attack uh, of the 55th Clones. I didn't care for him. I, I like The Last Jedi. It's great. You and those controversial takes that you did not care for those Ooh. prequels. All wow. right. Hot stuff. Can't handle it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. All right. We'll fire through the rest of the pop culture items. Netflix, endlessly rebooting shows. And here's the one. I, I put this on here because I, I just it left a question mark. They are rebooting... Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. Yeah, what was it? That's cool. Is that right? So I I saw this and I was like, does this show need rebooting? Oh, I liked this show because I, I liked the show, but I, I felt like it it did its thing. I'm the guy who needs help, and so I would <laughs> I really honestly I would have loved to have had these guys help me out. Well, what I didn't what I didn't like was they're rebooting it. I, I mean, they they had a good sort of notion is that they they feel like there's a lot of division happening in this country and they're going to reboot it and go to like middle america mm-hmm. to red states and reboot queer eye for the state the straight guy and i was like that feels a little forced to me no really yeah i don't know i don't know I, this is one of those where i feel like netflix is really throwing around too much money like yeah anything can be rebooted at this point yeah though now that i just you know dumped on netflix a little bit Got to bring it back up because I just finished. You finished it already? I finished it. I got sick, and so I sat on my couch and binge stuff. I finished season two of Voltron, Legendary Defender. All right. So I loved season one, and I, I raved about it, and I, I felt like they brought back and even improved one of my favorite cartoons from when I was a kid. I loved the first season of Voltron, and I watched it with my nine-year-old, and we both loved it. So been looking forward to this. Haven't watched it yet. Don't ruin it for me. I'm not going to say anything. But you liked it. 
I it was a worthy successor to season one. Awesome. And you know, very similar. Like left me wanting so much more at the end of season two. In a good way. In a good way. Yeah. God, it was a long way. Did you watch season one? Yet? I didn't. Ah. I... Did you watch the original? No. See, that's the thing. I that's don't know. If, I don't know if it's going to connect with me the yeah, same that's way. Nostalgia for me. Yeah. I got excited about the new Power Rangers trailer. That said, oh. you don't need to have watched the original. Oh, okay. This is, it's actually better if you don't watch the original because the animation just doesn't hold up. It's mm. far better. All the characters are much more diverse in this. They have interesting characters. Do you feel like it's a gateway into anime? Uh, like no. robot anime, mecha anime? I it's mean, not so much about robots, honestly. It's I mean, they, not. They become Voltron, of course. What, what I really like about Spoiler. it, it's like a serious <laughs> show, but it has all of these elements of silliness and comedy. Yeah. Um, it's self-referential in some it. ways. Yeah. And is it a reboot show where um, they're reintroducing all the characters from yep. scratch, or is it a callback show? Yes, 100% reboot. Okay. Got it. Thank you, Siri. Oh. Um, it's, I think, the same animation team that worked on Avatar The Last Airbender. Got it. Which was Got a it. fantastic show. Hey, Cora was on uh, Stone Title last week. Yeah, Cora and Becca from and You're the Becca, Worst. Becca, I didn't make that connection until reviewing the episode. I'm like, oh. <gasps> I've known Janet for a, a while just because Touch she runs Becca. a festival in town. And, yeah, Sketchfest. And um, we met a long time ago. Um, and, But just, wow. And have you seen Stand Against Evil? That's actually not. a pretty fun show, I too. She's a lot of fun you know, uh, characters on different shows. And if anyone out there is a fan of Burning Love, a short-lived Yahoo online series, Janet had an exceptional uh, character on that show. Oscar nominations. They're in, and I just realized I haven't seen a single Best Movie No, that can't be true. Wait, wait, let's name them. How many are there? How many Best Picture nominations are there? Nine. Let's go through one at a time. (laughs) Do you want to guess? Uh, Okay, Arrival. Yes, your favorite sci-fi film of the year. Uh, La La Land. Probably going to win it. Yep. Um, Hidden Figures? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Silence? No. That's a Martin Scorsese movie. Okay, you got six more. Fences, Hacksaw Ridge, Hell or High Water, Lion, Manchester. By the Sea. By Manchester. the Sea. And Moonlight. Oh, okay. I've, I've, I've seen only three of these. I am behind. Uh, I still haven't seen Arrival, uh, which I think is probably, and La La Land, which are probably the two on the list that I'm willing to see that I haven't seen. Uh, the other ones are hard movies. I mean, seeing Moonlight, Moonlight's a really difficult movie to watch i think it's a great movie especially the last half hour is fantastic mm. and mahershala ali is probably going to win best supporting actor incredible turn Rem- as remy danton on house of cards and um and in um uh, punisher or oh, not i thought you were going to say hunger games because uh, he was in the hunger games last oh month. i forgot about hunger games uh bay area native too from oakland oh. so uh i'm excited i don't I mean, I guess there's no Oscar so white this year. You met there's Luke a Cage. lot of yeah. you met Luke Cage. Luke Cage. You, Luke Cage is what I meant. Sorry. Uh, what's also interesting is uh, with the that coincides with the release of the Oscar nominations is uh, Andy Bio, who created XOXO, Delicious. Uh, he runs a shared Google Doc um, that he tracks leaked screeners and when the screeners for Oscar movies were leaked. It's just a fascinating social like, internet point yeah. for him. What, what does that mean, though? Um, like, 
movies that have been nominated, typically those get more awareness online and those get leaked, the screeners get leaked, and there's more demand in the pirating community. And while obviously we don't condone the pirating of movie content, the tracking of what content gets released is interesting because it's done by groups and individuals. And so he has this document that says, um, I think it's between 2003 he's been doing this. From 2003 but to 2017. These, wouldn't these results just mirror box office sales? Not necessarily. No? And he ranks them like when the screener was leaked. Was it leaked by Oscar night? Was it the DVD retail screener leaked? Was it high quality? Was it a cam leak? Um, was it a, like what type of leak it was? And the dates that those screeners actually hit uh, torrent sites. Yeah. Yeah. I still don't understand the significance of this info. Um, I think it... it it's tracking of uh, you know the a certain subculture of the internet. Yeah. Okay. Fine. But it doesn't indicate what's going to win. No. 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 Not. Okay. Not at all. No. Right. There's no correlation. It's just it, it's data points. Is there anything you're hoping for out of the Oscars this year? I'm hoping that La La Land doesn't win everything. I don't think it's going to win Best Picture. I think they're going to deny it. I think you're wrong. I think Moonlight's <laughs> going to win Best Picture. We're not doing a pool. Should we do a pool? Uh, that Hollywood loves a good musical. Sure. I'm uh, I'm hoping Kubo somehow surprises in animation, but I expect Zootopia to win. Also, worthy movie to win. Moana's up too, but apparently Zootopia is far more popular. Why did Zootopia and Moana both come out the same year? Yeah, yeah. Um, Disney is killing it. Yep. I'm sorry, not a Disney shell, but Disney's killing it. Yeah, there's no Finding Dory on this list. What? Yep. Wow. I I, wa- I re- rewatched Kubo on the flight back. Yeah. Does it hold up? Well, it holds up as well as I thought it would. Oh, I, I liked it, but I didn't love it. Oh, okay. I loved it. When I saw it, I thought I loved that it. this is one of my favorites. I got to watch it again. I just thought it was the most original of uh, of those three. Yep. Yeah. yeah. There's also a couple of movies i never heard of. My Life is a Zucchini and The Red Turtle. Might, might look into those either. For the parents out there. I'm just, I'm just hoping for a less activist Oscars than what we saw at the Golden Globes. Oh, in terms say. of speeches? Yeah, I'm hoping Jimmy Kimmel keeps it like light and airy. I feel well, you like know if it's Jimmy Kimmel. Oh, Jimmy Kimmel, not Fallon. No. Yeah, it's Kimmel. Oh, okay. So there'll probably be some biting sarcasm in there. Got it. All right. Uh, well, let's move on to some real tech news. So what's been happening this week in technology? The week I was out. <laughs> tell me, tell me of the things. Well, Norm, did you do you have an Amazon Echo? I do. You can now live the dream of accessing its uh, AI intelligence by calling on it by the name computer. Ah, the, I heard the, about this. The Star Trek dream of uh, accessing the world's information. Now. The qu- my question is, was this a technical challenge for them to implement, or was it arbitrary? And if it was arbitrary, um, why did it take so long? Yeah, so, good question. So obviously Amazon, Echo, I'm sorry I'm going to say the words, because it's Amazon, Echo, and Alexa. Those three words were the ones that were able to activate the device yep. um, since its launch. It's been out for two years now. It, it initially added... Uh, Echo, right? Echo later. That's right, which yeah. is the name of the product. Again, also weird because the technology, the service is its name, Alexa, and then the product is Echo. Yeah. Now, was were those chosen because of the, those were the sounds linguistically? It was easier to recognize those and pick those out. Um, and the word computer 
uh, was less so because it's softer tones and maybe it's not as sharp. Like, yeah. is was that the problem, or was it also it was just arbitrary because they wanted to get the things most affiliate with the brand out first and and lock in yeah, the why, user base? Why not allow people to come up with their own word? You know, you might as well as long as it's something that it can learn. Right. Um, what it also, feels arbitrary to me. It, it does to me as well. And something else I've been impressed by is uh, they've been running a lot of TV ads. And those Alexa TV ads, those are programmed in absolutely to not register with the device. They still do. I've never had it register with the TV ads. Mine is. I mean, Google's are the worst. The Google Home ads absolutely register. Ah. And I like thought they that will, waveform. Like, like uh, Amazon oh. would lock that waveform like, with oh. the ad to yeah. know that in that sequence, it would, it. Never, it would blacklist that version of the activation org. Well, did you switch over to computer? I can tell you I did try it uh, because I, unlike you, I, I just, I like Star Trek, but I was, I like it enough in order to give this a shot. And it, first of all, I ended up within the first couple hours with one false activation just by watching YouTube. Somebody said the word computer. And I realized that's going to happen quite frequently in yeah. my, in my office. And two, I, I, I kept calling it. I was, I was like referring to it as the normal name and I would forget that I had changed it over. So I just changed it back. Did you like if it sounded like the Star Trek computer, so uh, that would change. That would change everything. You mean if they got um, Major Ludberry? Uh, yeah. yeah. By the way, Lundberry. I heard that she recorded every phoneme yeah. in the human la- in the English language. I don't know if died. that's apocryphal because I know for um, for uh, the last star- when they did a recording session with her for Star Trek 2009. It was already laborious. They had to visit her. Like she couldn't go to studio. They went to her house right. and and did those specific phrases. Because um, when Spock enters the, uh, the ship, it, it says "Hello, Commander Spock" yeah. or "Ambassador Spock." So I don't know if they could have done all the phonemes. That's an intensive recording session. No doubt. Eventually, we'll get to the point where you can feed a computer x hours of recordings of any voice, and it will just well. L- that's what learn they did how with to do it. Roger Ebert. Uh, that was technology before he passed away. Uh, he worked with a tech company that they, because his voice loss, his his whole yeah. bottom that the operation was quite sudden. So they he didn't have the chance to record the phoneme. So his artificial voice was generated by all the hours and hours of recording that he had done for his TV show using machine learning, or did people tweak it? That's un- less certain. I think there must have been some machine learning there because I don't think it was a manual process. Hmm. Uh, but. That's something that was done, obviously, quite some time ago now, yeah. at least five years ago now, so the, it must be better. We could do better. Yeah. All right. Uh, sorry, I'm off the, off the page here. Uh, VPNs in China are now illegal. This is not shocking. No. I mean, they've cracked down on VPNs before. But it's been a loophole that the government has been not, they haven't been terribly strict about. You know, there's a lot of people who live over there that have used them to access other services throughout the world. Like YouTube and Twitter. And other restricted sites. And now, in order to run a VPN, you have to be, have official government sanctions. The I did read that the um, the articulation is still pretty vague. Yeah, and I think it's vague so they can have a lot of leeway to block VPN like workarounds in the future too. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's it was just a matter of time. Um, it'll be interesting to see how companies are affected by this. You know, multinational companies that would rely on this to interconnect their own company networks. You know, I guess it's up, the government doesn't have to be, <laughs> they don't have to be fair. They could let them whoever they want. You know, that is e- a good question. Use VPNs. How that that that's going to work for big companies? Um, it's 
it's sad on some level, but just really expected. Uh, booster board battery packs are finally shipping to the version twos. Oh, it's good news, man. Because for a, a while there, there, there wasn't a whole lot of communication coming out on de- you know when they were hoping to get these shipped. And but these are only version twos. Version one was never affected. Got it. But the version two board, uh, they sent out a few early shipments, and uh, a couple of the batteries started uh, leaking. And so there was there were a lot of concern. They were cautious to yeah. to recall those. They did. Re- they did. In retrospect, they did very well. I mean, like the CEO was. Uh, flew out to New York as soon as you heard about the one instance, gave the guy a replacement, took it back, um, and they did all, a lot of good research, and uh, I guess they solved the problem. So now the version 2 uh, battery packs are, are shipping, and they're back on the road. Did you... Um, uh, I think you put this one in there, the screensaver, the art of the screensaver. <laughs> well, yeah, this is weird. Um, I love this. This is the return of the flying toaster. Uh, that's it's a great header, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, so what this is there's a a gallery um, show coming up, featuring the art of the screensaver, featuring I think what is it twenty seven different old school screensavers. Yeah, where is it? It's in a, it's yeah. in Europe somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Netherlands. Oh, there you go. Um, yeah, so this I mean somebody who appreciates the lost art of the screensaver. And no. he, they've compiled a lot of them, and you'll be able to go and reminisce <laughs> and look at your old screensaver. Let's off the top of our head, without reading the entire article, let's talk about the ones that really... Oh, like, I have them up on my screen. Because so. the screensaver, it's almost like the, the uh, chime, the launch chime. It kind of identifies the era of computing you grew yeah. up with. And maybe that's less so for people now where their first computers are their phones or tablets. But when we, you know when we were installing new OS, OSs every two years or three years, we would get these new features, built-in features, such as startup chimes and screensavers. On, on the PC side, you had um, pipes, 3D pipes. That was that, OpenGL. That's on here. You had uh, the maze, which is like Wolfenstein 3D style, the brick wall maze. Yeah. I don't see that one yet. Is that it there? one of my favorites. Um, there was definitely the star field. Windows never, nobody really did great screensavers in, by default. Mac had okay ones. What did Mac have? Well, Mac had the more you know beautiful wavy lines, like the not they had like kaleidoscopic ones, or they had these uh, blurry wavy lines that would move back and forth. Um, to be clear, you need it was a good idea to run screensavers at back one then. at one time because when you're running on a CRT monitor, if you leave an image on the screen, it would stay there even when the screen was turned off. Burning. Yeah. So once we came to LCD technology, uh, that became less an issue. Nowadays. They're engineered from the ground up to never really have burned it anymore. So that's why it's certainly a lost art. Do you remember the aquarium one? Where oh, all yeah. the fish would come in from different sides? I yeah. love that one. Yep. Yeah. I, I'm a little sad that screensavers never merge with like the demo scene. Well, that's so the, this guy is, he talks about screensavers in the same kind of, you know, um, I don't know. Uh, the same way that I talk about it, the demo scene, which is that with a lot, of, a lot of reverence, where it's this mix of left and right-brained creativity, which uh, I find really, really exciting. Um, but screensavers rarely reach that same level of effort <laughs> as as the demo scene uh, would. And uh, so I'd, I'm curious to, to see if this guy's even heard of the demo scene, uh, what his opinion on, of it is. I think that this that the demo scene would be a much more interesting exhibit because there's way more examples i mean every year competitions right in terms no, of landmarks thousands and thousands and and much higher caliber examples and, and the and, demo scene really sound. tracks computing um and and um 
it, it better demonstrates like with screensavers you have OpenGL and, and, and yeah. DirectX as examples that, that help you launch different types of screensavers. Demo scene does different types of coding and different hardware architectures that allow certain things. He talks about screensavers as uh, being as representing the the language of what computers were capable of at, in a certain era, and that's just what demos do for me too. This the same, is, same way that games do. This site is amazing. And and uh, the site is really good. The site is incredible. It has interviews with the artists that made these. I just uh, rediscovered the mystery house that would like light up different elements of the house. Do you remember? I those? never saw that one. Oh my god, that was one of my favorites. Um, there was a great site called Really Slick Screensavers back in the day, and this uh, I think it was a, a a girl. She made the most amazing screensavers. I tried to hire her when we were at PC Gamer to oh. do an official PC Gamer screensaver, but she was too expensive. Wow. I don't yeah. see her stuff represented here. What were your favorite custom screensavers that you downloaded on the PC? I'm asking people out there as well as people in this room right now. I want to know. Like, I, I definitely had an Elcars, Star Trek Next Generation one. That would look good. Um, but I would, I would love to know. And they were one type of file. So in, this, in that sense, it was very much like a demo scene and that it was one, yeah, one a, file. SCR. And you just double-click it and it would launch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait to see that list from all the listeners. All right, uh, some tech updates, product updates. Finally, this is a legit finally. We got the first update to Google Voice. Yeah, and it's really just an update to the visual interface for Google Voice, which is looked like it was from the early 2000s, for the, pretty much for the last 10 years it's had that same interface. And it is a much more slick interface, consistent with how uh, Gmail and other messaging uh, apps look now. Uh, looks great. It's good overhaul. Necessary yeah. overhaul? I mean, Google Voice, excuse me, exists both as an app and a service. Yeah, I and mean, you it's could, visual voicemail for Android users, basically. Mm-hmm. But you could also use Google Voice, the, the phone number system, mm-hmm. and not use the app. Like, I use Google Voice for my work phone number, and it, it mm-hmm. does great at transcribing. Uh, that service, I think, is the more important thing. And, yeah, this seems like a, a minor update. It's not going away. It's not going away. That's really what I was, uh, the key of seeing that visual update uh, is a signal to me. Uh, One quick thing before we go to the world of artificial intelligence. Uh, We got Mobile World Congress is coming up soon, and we're getting a couple leaks from it. And uh, the one that caught my eye was the leak of the LG G6, Mm -hmm. which looks like, you know, it's more rounded, iPhone-esque type phone, uh, very slim bezel on it. Um, I think it's a, a, a nice update. We're going to see if we get some Android Wear 2.0 f- um, devices out of LG as well, which I'm really excited about seeing. Um, uh, but I think the phone looks pretty slick from the leaked photos. They, that leaked photo shows not only minimal bezel left and right, but on top. Um, so really trying to get rid of that forehead and chin, maybe the the fad this year, minimizing the forehead and chin. You got to saw it. Got a place for the, um, for the speaker and for or the camera, front-facing camera, and for your light sensor, um, but minimizing that as much as possible. <laughs> it looks a lot like an iPhone off the side. Yep. All right. Let's go to the land of AI. All right. The big conceptual technology news this week. We're always tracking the. Um, achievements, the milestones in artificial intelligence from their ability to beat human players in Go to learning how they would learn games like StarCraft. And one game that's currently being played right now by AI against top human players is Texas Hold'em. Yeah, this is there's an actual competition at the Rivers Casino in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania 
called Brains versus Artificial Intelligence. It's a 20-day competition. This is not like they're sitting around in an afternoon with a PC. They're playing 120,000 hands. Of, Ooh, is that me? That's you. It must uh, be you. That's you. Close that window. <laughs> so uh, we're going to get... Uh, Long and short of it is that the AI is winning, but it's, you gotta it's trouncing. It's trouncing. <laughs> it's taking the virtual money from the human players, but you gotta take it with a grain of salt because when every time we talk about how an AI is being developed, whether it's for Jeopardy or for Go or for StarCraft to play against humans, you have to think about the context of how these games are actually played in real life. And whether it's the intellectual aspect, the mechanics that it's actually defeating, or the actual interaction aspects. With Jeopardy, uh, even though Watson was tapped into you know, petabytes of data and could see through that and had, could process language, a lot of the reason that Watson won in Jeopardy was its ability to hit the answer question faster than Ken Jennings and the other competitors did. One in the interaction level. Now, some people might say that's unfair. That humans, what they lost wasn't its ability. Humans didn't lose in our ability to retain knowledge as well as Watson or process language, but our ability to read or listen to Trebek's cadence and and hit the button as soon as he finished the sentence. Yeah, that's not what's going on here, though. Here, you don't have a robot avatar. You don't have someone, the human, the robot's human avatar playing its cards. Right, you have computer screens. If you look at the photo here on the story on Gizmodo, it's humans playing together. First of all, they're cooperating, the human players against the AI, and they are playing with computer screens in front of them. Mm -hmm. So it's not the real Texas Hold'em experience that the no. AI is winning at. But it is a lot of it, it. It's not a, but it is the computer with imperfect information beating the humans. In a game about imperfect right. information. I, I, are you either of you poker players? No, not really. Okay, I've I, played. I've played. Okay, have, this is heads up, no limit Texan, uh, Texas Hold'em. Yep. Uh, which is, according to the article, like the holy grail of AI when it comes to poker. That they, they solved uh, regular Texas Hold'em years ago. Limit. Yeah. Right, right, limit. Um, but this is, this, is a harder, this is a harder challenge because there's more unknowns. And heads up is 1v1. Okay, is that what I didn't Correct. know that? Is yeah. that right? Yeah. Okay. And right now the the computer who is playing four humans beating them all. It's up by a million dollars total. Currently, they still have um they're playing this all the way through the 30th of January and there is a Twitch stream that you can watch of the competition on. Wow. So, the computer isn't reading any it's what is the input? For, for the computer? Is it time delay? Is it time to play a hand? Is it like, there are all these factors in Texas Hold'em that contribute to how you play, not just the cards that you see and the cards that you have. Um, well, there's a huge psychological element. Exactly. Which is, which is why this is you know, particularly either terrifying or interesting. But uh, there's also like a fatigue element, right? Well, sure, that, that, pe that people would experience that a yeah. computer wouldn't. I don't think that that's... As much a factor. These guys love playing poker. They probably could play poker for forty-eight hours straight. That if they if they could, if they had to. These guys are the best in the world. And a lot of what they do when they're playing is automated. Like they have their patterns. They and they're they're running. It's almost subconscious because they've played so many hands. What they do and what they're doing. But here they're reading nothing. They have nothing to read. No player to read in the sense of uh, um, tells of, of tells. Uh, and, and they have no tells to give. 
the only tells they have right. to give are their hands and the bet amounts, mm-hmm. right? So, but it has a perfect memory of all the hands you played. So as you go along, it's probably going to get a lot better against the same opponent if you play based on the same pattern. Uh, but the interesting thing about the article is that apparently the machine is learning throughout this competition. It's not; it, it's improving. So the humans are finding weaknesses as they're playing in the tournament, and the weaknesses of the machine, and they're finding that the machine is compensating. The next day, yeah, I I think it's I think it's awesome. Um, now the the article does make the point though that while the AI is exceptional, turning out to be exceptional at this game, just as um, AlphaGo is exceptional at Go, uh, what we don't have yet is a generalized artificial intelligence. So right. you know, as terrifying as this might be, um, that this is not going to be able to drive a car. It can't make coffee. It can't do anything else. It probably can't outsmart you at an Atari 2600 game. Um, so it, this is like, it's, it's interesting new frontiers, but we're still quite a ways off from a generalized intelligence. Although they do think that this is one of the, it, that this leads to in the right direction because this is int- introducing this need for, um, you know, compensating for unknown information and the psychological element of, are you bluffing? And I'm going to try to bluff you. These are new areas for AI. Cue the Hollywood film where someone puts on augmented reality goggles and taps into an AI to earn a bunch of money in Vegas at poker. I mean, one, I want to understand the stock market implications of AI and, and when AI can manage and bet on the stock market far faster and superior to any people. I think we've done that. I, we've I, ma- that I imagine that that's already happening, but is that is that available to me? Can I, can I have an AI of my own that I tweak to my specifications? No, I think that's a, that's the risk-reward where the investment is in the data lines and yeah. the c- computation, and the cost for that allows you to get minimal gain that over time makes up for that cost. All right. Um, before we move on to our next segment, I want to thank the sponsor of this week's episode of This was, This Is Only a Test, and that's Crizol No Glare Lenses. Uh, if you wear glasses, then you know that fingerprints, smudges, scratches, and glares can obstruct your vision and be a huge distraction. That's why you might want Crizol No Glare Lenses. They give you the clearest vision possible by offering resistance to glares, scratches, and smudges. It means no more fingerprints from taking your glasses on and off or scratches from cleaning your lenses on your shirt. And better yet, no more blinding glare created by your digital devices. So you can see everything on your screen even if you're working at night. Uh, Crizol lenses stay clear and reduce distracting glare so your friends and family can actually see your eyes, not your glasses. And you can look better, feel better, and be prepared for whatever comes your way with clear vision. Go to Crizol.com. That's C-R-I-Z-A-L.com and start living life in the clear. Thank them for sponsoring this week's podcast. And now on to some pinball. I'm a pinball nerd. Pin, 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 pin. Just to my point. Finally, pinball. That makes me very happy. Um, I I wasn't prepared to talk about pinball news, but I can. Um, if you were to hire, if you were Stern Pinball, yeah, and you could hire anyone in the world to be a pinball designer, what would those qualifications be? You're talking about designing the aesthetics of a cabinet or the no, gameplay, the layout, the layout, the flow. The ramps, the lanes, where the slingshots are, how far apart the flippers are. Yeah. Uh, one of the qualifications is someone who loves and understands and plays pinball a lot. Wow, that's a very good answer because they have just announced a hiring of the world's number one pinball player mm. to be their latest designer. 
Okay. Keith Elwin. Wow. He is far and away, everyone agrees, he's probably the best player in the world, has been for decades. <laughs> and uh, he's going to start there in March. So my question is, is that a, not a good thing for casual players? Because would that person want to design, and maybe and Keith absolutely has the best, understa- yeah. uh, uh, incredible understanding of pinball and the physics and gameplay. But is he going to want to push for designs that are best suited for competitive play, yeah. and less so for fun play? That's that. That is a that is a concern. They they actually already employ a programmer who is a very highly ranked pinball player, and his. You know what? They don't employ him. I'm. I'm. Th- they they do. <laughs> they employ somebody like that. His name is Lyman. But um, another pinball company employs a very highly ranked uh, competitive pinball player, and his rule sets are typically just too deep for regular players. You never see half the stuff that's in the game because he's so good. He made, he's making it for himself. He makes it basically like he, he lacks perspective. Oh. So I, you're right. I wonder if Keith will make a game that's accessible to everyone and yet deep enough for the professional players to dig. Here's your buddy cop movie. Pair him with a kid. I like it. <laughs> now it's time for a moment of science. All right, fair warning. If you don't like politics talk, it's probably a good time to opt out for a few minutes. Uh, because in the world of science, the big story this week uh, has to do with orders from the Trump administration uh, that have, from many scientists' perspectives and from many journalists' perspectives, uh, have gagged certain federal agencies from speaking to the press and releasing their work without permission first. Uh, it's important to note this was most directed at the uh, USDA, which has since rescinded the order due to public pressure. Um, the EPA, uh, the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, and a few other smaller agencies, including uh, maybe not a smaller agency, but the Department of Energy as well. There are some indications this is happening at the CDC. The from the administration side, or for somebody that's looking for, you know, potentially what could be happening here, uh, is this is a short-term sort of uh, limitation that's meant for a couple weeks while they sort of figure out how they want to centralize communications. I don't. I have a hard time really buying that. The idea that they're going to have a new system for approving all press releases and limiting social media um, and limiting a, a new process to approve any requests for press to talk to scientists is, is deeply concerning. Um, Big brother to me. How do you feel about it? From like, I'm I'm really inside this. Um, j- working in a university, I work with scientists all the time. Just uh, external, not in the industry. When you heard about this, what were your thoughts? It feels very Orwellian to me. I I, I feel I feel very upset about it, and I'm glad that you're going to do something about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the most concerning one was the EPA one. Yeah, now, this is very expected, and uh, the it's that the AP reported last night that. Uh, the EPA is going to have to submit any scientific manuscripts to the administration for review before publication. Well, wasn't that the- is a massive problem if true. Now, AP reporting has been solid in years past, so I have no reason to doubt the validity of the story. I, I think they've confirmed it. Um, that is deeply troubling. Well, there you go, doubting the validity. That's the concern when you have when you're politicizing things that are objective um, 
and whether or not you're releasing fake data or changing the subjective things like like the benchmarks for for uh, toxic water or for example um that's where you you have fears it attacks a fundamental um piece of what science is is attacking the distribution and publishing of the data and experiments that move science forward absolutely uh, but wasn't the first order given to the EPA to remove the climate change portion of the website? Yeah, I'm l- the the whole like website stuff, like how climate change came down off the White House website and how they're reviewing, quote unquote, uh, different elements of the EPA website. I feel like, you know, on one side, um, A, I'm not surprised given the stances on climate change, but they've also only been in office since Friday. Um, I think we... I think it's fine to give them a little time to say where's the where is the website's gonna end up. This is a via, like, but the the mandate to the EPA to like review literature before it's published. Yeah, that's a violation to me. It is a ma- it is a real massive violation against the integrity of science. Uh, well, especially on- if there's no transparency about what's removed and what's changed since that review. Yeah, like we have no lo- oversight. We don't know who would be doing this review um, at this point. Um, President Obama, uh, he, during his time, ordered all the federal agencies to um, enact uh, integrity guidelines around their scientific work. Uh, almost all of those have been circumvented um, in the first few months. There is notions of this at the NIH, but we haven't really heard much more about that. The NSF, we haven't heard anything about the National Science Foundation. I, I don't know what to say. Like I've talked to a couple friends off the record who work at government scientific agencies and while i was expecting them to be angry um most of them were just confused like they just don't know what's happening right now um yeah i I don't suppose this is a part of their world no uh also um cdc was forced to cancel a conference on uh uh that relates on health and climate change uh that was scheduled for february the conferences, the attacks on publication, those are really big deals to me. Like, I, I can't yield to that because it attacks the core of what science is. I mean, it's one thing to say that this new administration is going to cut funding to science. That's a congressional decision. That's a, you know, um, executive branch decision on, on budget planning. It's another thing to attack the integrity of the of the process. Yeah. Well, this is a president that, that understands message and media and public manipulation better than maybe any president has. And or have the people. So, or take and, t- and takes advantage of it. That that's what I mean. And unfortunately, he's taken advantage of it for the for the other side. So I'm sighing a lot into the microphone. So if you're a scientist, what do you do now? What like you're in this position now? What do you do? Well. I mean, you you resist, don't you? So resist is, is definitely like a a theme that has come up. You see a lot of anger. You saw what happened with the Badlands National Park Service Twitter account, which started tweeting out climate change results and then had those tweets deleted. Um, uh, so you I had to whistle blow science. There was a, a resist mentality. The most popular article on the Atlantic's wet website yesterday was an article that um, a friend of mine, Ed Young, wrote 
about scientists running for public office. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there is an organization called 314.org, 314, 314, that's pretty nerdy, (laughs) Uh, whose whole um, emphasis is on preparing scientists to run for public office. And they've had 400 people register to be candidates through their program uh, in the last few weeks. Uh, So I think you're going to see a big shift towards scientists running for public office. I'm not convinced that that is a fantastic course of action for all scientists, but um, uh, I listened to a a great webinar today from Rush Holt. He's the CEO of AAAS, which is the largest scientific society in the U.S. He's a former congressman from New Jersey uh, talking about what it's like to be a scientist serving in public office and how he really sees an opportunity for scientists to take public office and make much more um, bring much more focus to evidence-based policy. Uh, so I wish them luck. I am involved with a group right now that's organizing a mar- a science march mm-hmm. on DC and in satellite um, cities across the country. I, I'm both energized by this idea of having a march that's really focused on this attack, on uh, something so fundamental to an area that has been a huge benefit to all Americans and all global citizens. We, there's a lot of economic track record that every dollar you invest in science leads back to you know $2 to the broader economy. And I'm also skeptical that a march is going to do anything, especially if you're somebody who you know doesn't have a job in science, has not seen your wages grow, uh, and you're seeing a bunch of scientists potentially complain about a cut in their funding. I mean, look, there's different things that it, that it can accomplish. You know, it you, it might not affect any immediate change in policy, but there's a lot of people out there who who watched the inauguration and felt one way, and then a day later, felt completely the opposite uh, because they saw a bunch of people marching. And so I I think that you could affect a you know a lot, you could encourage a lot of people, you could fuel a lot of people. I think it has to navigate this fine line where it has to be a march for science. It has it does it can't be a scientist march. I think it has to be broader than that, where all the advocates come out. Um, there's already been a number of celebrities that have lent their name to it. Um, I will be really interested to see what the scientific societies, like all the groups, the universities, all of them that have to walk this really fine line, um, where they're public institutions, but they're you know, their constituency, the scientists want to go out and do this. What is that going to look like? This is going to be gnarly over the next few months. This is only going to get a nastier fight, especially if these, um, if this continues with the EPA into other federal agencies. I think the CDC, the EPA, and the Department of Energy are going to bear the weight of this. And I think there's, science is a naturally uphill battle because the pursuit of science is not naturally glamorous. And it's the search for truth, and it's oftentimes time-consuming, laborious, and the things that come out of it can be glamorous, but that that's not the things that come out of it aren't science. It's the process, and you can't. It's it's not a tangible as tangible an idea as as uh, other things that you can march and protest for. I mean, if you look at this from a pure business perspective, a lot of the research that the federal government funds uh, here in the U.S. the private sector will not fund. It's too risky, um, but they use that research to build um, into actual products for the private sector. Uh, the pharmaceutical industry depends on 
university research uh, in, uh, in, in biology and chemistry and biochemistry uh, in order to actually develop new drugs and, and treatments. This is a, uh, this, you, that apparatus is not going to go away. Congress can't, can't do that. There's too many jobs at stake. I can see a reduction in it happening. But I think the attack on, on the publication and their com- ability to communicate, especially to the press, yeah, I have a hard time seeing them be able to execute that. And that's not, that shouldn't be a partisan issue either. Uh, no. Uh, Canada went through something similar. Uh, Stephen Harper, when he was prime minister a few years ago, instituted a gag order on Canadian-funded scientists. There's a lot to learn about from uh, what happened during that interim time period, how the press... Um, handled that in terms of their communication with scientists. Uh, and I think there's some interesting reads that I'm going to put in the show notes around that issue. This is a, a I, I, this surprised me. I, maybe I shouldn't be surprised. Maybe I'm, I'm naive, but the review of scientific publications really caught me off guard and angered me in a way that I haven't been about a science issue in a long time. I always feel like there should be protections in place for this kind of, kind of thing, but it's almost as if these, institutions were developed uh, <laughs> without the assumption that somebody like this might uh, make these kind of Well, the uh, Obama administration orders. did try to put in some integrity clauses to protect this, but they were easily circumvented hmm. because of how they were enacted. There's some legal rules. Uh, Maggie Kurth Bar- uh, Baker from 538, she's a science reporter there, wrote an article about how it was, um, how these protections were circumvented so quickly. All right. I'm going to pause. I actually really tried to tone everything down there because I would have put some expletives in um, normally because this is really really just fucked up. Uh, And I'll just leave it there. I have a couple short um, science stories. I'm going to start with Norm's favorite. Let's talk about some new spacesuits. New spacesuits. Now, uh, Boeing uh, just revealed that for their Starliner... um, ship, which is the the craft that's going to ferry U.S. astronauts to the ISS starting, I believe, next year, right? 2018, we're no longer going to rely on Soyuz, although with this administration, maybe, maybe more on Soyuz. Um, they have, they designed, along with David Clark Company, these new spacesuits that the astronauts will be wearing. And these are not um, uh, EMUs, like the Apollo 11, uh, Apollo suits that you, that you would see that, that, um, that were worn on the moon. These are to wear... Uh, for the trip up and the trip down, almost like a redundant uh, security system in case anything happens. Uh, but they are significantly, uh, there are a lot of significantly new technologies in these, um, from basic things like touchscreen fingertips on the gloves that are needed to um, work on the controls uh, to a, a zippered helmet system that's a part of the suit itself. Um, but the aesthetics are the most literally eye-catching things about this these spacesuits. And a lot of people have pointed to possibly uh, the Lego Spaceman as being inspiration, I think. Bill it Benny. is that color blue, huh? It is that color blue. It looks very much like a Lego <coughs> Spaceman. I thought they were very beautiful to look at. I was struck by the amount of weight loss that they were able to achieve in the suit. And then also that they don't have to have an integrated cooling system in it. Like it's comfortable enough in its current architecture that they didn't have to have like a really hyper-specialized cooling system like they do for some of the larger suits. Now, this isn't for walking around in space. Yeah, this it's not really, for spacewalks, yeah. This is all just for, you know, the travel and that new um, 
what, what's it called? The Z1? Starliner? Oh, Starliner. Yeah. Uh, it looks snazzy. Yeah. I like it's it. all based off of the impressions of their flight engineer, though. Mm. We haven't had, like, official third-party utilization of the suit yet. Is so. this, a, like, a one-bit simplified version of the NASA logo? No, that's what a Starliner it? logo. Oh, okay. No, we don't. No new NASA logos. Yeah, no, no, no. That would be that would be a big deal. That has to go through a whole approval process I within bet. the administration. Branding process. You get a whole uh, whole art guidebook to come along with that. Or we can just start a Kickstarter. Yeah. Revive a logo. That's right. Uh, what else, Kishore? Uh, oh, um, a, a little inside baseball one, but I thought this one was really interesting. Uh, the Gates Foundation, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates, uh, fund a number of of big scientific projects, mostly around global health. They've been at the forefront of delivering vaccines into third world areas, um, fighting against malaria, against polio. Uh, They have a policy as a foundation. Anything they fund has to be published in an open access or open data journal. Uh, And so there are a number of private journals uh, that don't conform to the Gates policy of open access, meaning like any of us could access that uh, the publications from their work at any time uh, freely on the internet. And uh, uh, this clash is is uh, getting more significant now. So the Gates Foundation, probably the most influential foundation in the world uh, at this point, is clashing with um, uh, journals like Nature and Science. These are the two premier scientific journals uh, in the world as well. So it'll be interesting to see how this is uh, handled A number of, um, uh, I think nature and science are being very careful about how they're wording about this. It's very uh, legal legal discussions here. But I think the Gates Foundation is really flexing a lot of muscle, saying like, hey, these are are worthy scientific studies to be included in you, but we're going to go somewhere else and undermine your business model if you're not going to publish them. I think it's really fascinating. It's a little bit inside baseball fight for science, but it's sort of fascinating what... Uh, the Gates Foundation is doing with that money. And lastly, this one's the weird one. Um, Scientists have filmed light again. I talked about this before where MIT Media Lab developed a trillion FPS-like camera (laughs) where they're able to essentially stitch together images of light going through a medium using multiple cameras taking images um, trillions of a second apart. and now a new group had did did this as well with light going through essentially like a fog and seeing if light, just like how um, an item goes through air and can create a sonic boom if it goes fast enough, does light actually create that effect too? And it does. It's called the mock, what is it? The photonic mock cone. Is that the little popping I hear all the time? No, <laughs> it's light. It doesn't make sound. That's right. <laughs> Wait a minute now. Is this, is this like a wake or is this like a sonic boom? Uh, this is like a, uh, it's closer to a sonic boom because a wake kind of like ripples out the, uh-huh. uh, out the back. This is a little bit different. So, There's a, but light only travels at one speed. A sonic boom happens. I suppose it travels at different speeds in different mediums. Ah, so this is traveling like it. The actual, um, uh, experiment had a light sandwich between two plates, and there was a medium in it. This fog uh-huh and so as it traversed that it actually created this sort of cone-like shape as it was going through it and does it have to travel at a specific speed velocity in order to create a 
a sonic boom, so to speak? Well, I mean, it's traveling, you know, it's traveling close to the speed of light, okay. regardless of the media. You understand, like, yeah, so the sonic boom it. happens at the speed of sound, mm-hmm. and, and then nothing beyond that. There's, yeah. Th- there's a threshold. Yes, yeah, so this is still happening, basically, at the speed of light. Interesting. And um, so it's constant. Yes, but they were f- able to film this at real time, so you can see yeah. this cone created. Mm. Uh, they have a video of it. It's um, wicked. And so is this like a pulse of light? Yes, this is a laser pulse. And like a 10 millimeter, 5 millimeter? 5 um, millimeters, the distance yeah, that yeah. it, it covers. Yeah, looks, it looks maybe like 10 millimeters It's long. a 7 picosecond laser pulse. I believe. <laughs> That's really short. That is pretty short. That's really neat. So I'll put a link up to the video. I just thought that was one of the more fascinating um, science discoveries. Uh, and hopefully, as long as this wasn't a government agency, we'll, we'll be able to see publications like this in the future. Oh, that's right. Shade oh, at the end. Still unhappy about this. Somehow, I think you just probably brought up the most important topic of the whole podcast, but we're going to move on to some mundane shit. The VR Minute. Virtual reality this week. Did you guys see Dear Angelica? I did not get a chance to watch it. I only got back late last night. I actually haven't been able to put on the headset since I've been sick. I've had, I got a a minor sinus infection along with this, and I haven't been able to. It's uncomfortable. Wear wear the rift. Nope. I get more. I'm nauseous just really quickly. Oh, motion sick. Yeah. Interesting. Well, Dear Angelica is a must watch. It's the new Oculus uh, Studio. Is it what they call it? Story Studio. Story Studio. Yep. Um, The internal Oculus, um, you know, the team. And they've done Henry and uh, what was the, that was the first one, right? They've done a couple of these. Lost. That long well, I guess that was early on, yeah. yeah. Um, and there are short films. This is a completely different direction for them because it's not your typical Pixar-like 3D-generated world. It was use, created using Quill. Uh, Quill. It looks like it. And there is in the Quill application and Dear Angelica and has been the, the environment that they created out of it. Well, the, wait till you see it because it is beyond a static environment. Mm. It's it's beautiful. It is the most it is the most unique thing I've ever seen in VR, and it, it's really it gets into that demo scene kind of territory where you're just like, wow, this is really really interesting and novel. So I, I would check it out. It's it's, it's voiceover. Um, it's got um, some interesting work done there, and the transitions and the animations are very tastefully done. It's um, it's one of these experiences you, you know, it gets into that, okay, this needs to be in VR kind of experience rather than you could imagine maybe just watching it on a two-dimensional screen. They actually release this at Sundance. Yeah, they do and that with most of their shorts. Did, uh, what's the reaction, man? Do you know? Um, I, it's been great. It's been, like, it's really a lot of the media, at least, that I've seen the headlines have been, um, <coughs> this is a new level kind of experience. I mean, I, and I'm probably blowing it out of proportion, and then your expectations are going to be high. I would just say, obviously, it's free on the Oculus Store. If you have a Rift, you owe it to yourself to check this out. All right. Um, other other Oculus news um, or application news. We had upgrade to update to big screen VR. Big screen is the screen sharing social application that we use for our VR podcast at the end of last year. That's right. Yeah. Some basic things that we really want to see, like you can all control desktop audio streaming. It's not just the admin of the room that can tr- control it. So That's now good. everyone can contribute. And you still need to have that banana thing installed, though. Yes. Uh, you, they're still working on an in-house solution for that, but 
Um, everyone needs to have that third-party software installed to make it work, but now anyone can share their audio. Yeah, and then you can lock and, and change the audio. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, they listed out a bunch of the um, features that are coming down. The one that I was most interested in is they're working on um, better uh, FPS for multiplayer stuff. I'm excited. What do you mean? It, it, that's what they listed on their roadmap. Big screen? Forward. Yeah. Hmm. Frames per second? Yeah. All right. Uh, I guess the, the biggest news, we've kind of buried it, is uh, there's a new VP at Facebook in charge of all VR. Yeah. This, so this came out of nowhere. Is this their CEO? The no, they, they're abandoning that term. Yeah. Ah, so the leader. So it's really, Zuckerberg is going to be yeah, he's CEO, CEO of, of Oculus by Facebook. And his title is VP of ah. virtual reality. Okay. So this is a Hugo Barra. Mm -hmm. I think this bodes well. That it's like Oculus and VR is such an integrated part of Facebook that they're sort of their own product line now. So uh, what is what does he bring to, and what what has he done in the past? Because uh, he worked on Google, Android, and most recently, uh, for the past couple of years, he was, he's been at uh, Xiaomi mm -hmm. in China, in China on their Android phones. But and people really like those phones. I, I think you know maybe he brings the this product scaling. Apparently, he worked at Android early on and brought it from infancy to something that was a mature, usable operating system. Hmm. Uh, he was around there for the like 2.0, 3.0 days where it really advanced. That's what I read. I, I mean, I, I use a Nexus 7. That's my experience with Android. But um, people have a lot of respect for him, and so I, I think it seems like a wise choice. All right. Happy well, to see where that goes. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, that means that we'll hear announcements this year about pr new products and new technologies whenever, coming out of coming out of Oculus. I will say, whenever I see companies do this, I gotta wonder what it's like to be like on the inside of, of Facebook because they have so many employees, so many people who love VR so much that they've dedicated their lives to it already, and yet here comes this other guy who has a lot of management experience and has <coughs> clearly you know done product development and understands how to talk to people and is a good figurehead. But I get, like I'm I I feel very strongly that if you can hire from the inside, you should. Well, I think that you just got can't have egos about it. Yeah, right. You have to believe it's the good thing for the company and the brand and technology. And it, it is different than if you're hiring someone to lead a, a phone development or an Android, because that's uh, Android. I guess basically Android is the most comparable because Android was launched as an open, you know, open uh, mobile OS initiative, and so you did have true believers in in that type of platform. And it is what it is now. But VR, you also have, in the same sense, these true believers in VR as a platform and mm. as, as an emerging technology. Um, but you know, for the people who were at Oculus from the very beginning, um, it they have to just trust management and trust that this is good for developing uh, the product side of it because uh, it needs to be a product for the technology to have a future. Um. I got an interesting tweet, I guess a few of us did, um, from one of our listeners who suggested we check out the uh, the disposable virtual reality headset cover. Which now, is this what like Steve Lynn was talking about last week when talking about those? Oh, yeah. maybe. It must have, it must have been because um, Henrik uh, Johansson is, is the one who tweeted at us. And uh, it's, it's the perfect solution. Um, you get 100 of them <laughs> in a pack. And, you know, if you're going to bring if you're going to use your VR headset at a party, I would use, I would certainly buy a pack of these. We got some of those like VR covers. Uh, well, yeah, but a those, while those ago. are permanent. Like you yeah. leave those on there, or you can wash them. This is like a toilet. Cover. I haven't liked using the VR cover because it, it it like changes the ergonomics for me. 
Yeah, and, and a lot of so these like gasket type things that you see them at demo events, um, like for Vive events specifically, yeah. these kind of white, you know, tissue like intermediate. Yeah. And this is like that, except this one I believe wraps around or has loops so it sticks to the, uh, oh, the sides it. of the head better. You see the photo? Yeah. It's Oh yeah, it goes yeah. around your ears. Makes you look like a ninja. It basically, yeah. it basically is a is a costume. Wow, it's like a SARS guard except for your face. Yeah, for, exactly. for VR. <laughs> yeah, um, and then Oculus is you know last week you guys mentioned that people in um, in the Oculus subreddit and also in the community some people have had problems, erratic erratic problems with uh, tracking with their systems, uh, whether two cameras or three cameras. And Oculus it may be in the most public way of addressing this is releasing a couple of blog posts guiding people on how to do room scale setup. It's a series of blog posts. Their first one, I believe, uh, was about tips. They called them tips for setting up killer room scale VR, uh, which I thought were, you know, what did you think, Jeremy? Are they useful tips? Were you already doing these things? Um, I actually, I only have two cameras. Uh, so I, and I understand some of the problems so far. So I just, I didn't, I just breezed through them. I, I read through them too. I mean, they're still advocating those two front sensors on the desk, which I don't love because they're easily jostled. And that sort of disrupts things. Um, they Wait, talked you're, about you're, you're free to mount them. Yeah, I guess right? so. But I mean, yeah, I the, mean, when they're on your uh, on your desk, it's harder to figure out where to mount them. The only solution the is to have a like a third thing that they can triangulate with that is permanently mounted somewhere. That's what they are su- suggesting here to a certain extent. They yeah, with about three cameras th- on the, in the on corners the, of the room. Yeah, the third camera, three D printing mount, put it in the in the back of the room. They have a different couple different setups. I thought what was interesting is that the it's sort of a throwaway message at the very bottom. They're basically like, don't go more than three sensors. Now, that ties into the second uh, post in this series, which specifically talks about USB controller hosts. And we know this is the limiting factor in in Oculus and in terms of sensors. Um, for coverage, because it's an active camera system, every sensor you add uses computer resources, specifically USB resources. And so in this blog post, they talk about the difference between USB 3 and USB 2. And basically, they're not, they're recommending, they know like every computer is different, every computer, like each port, even though you might see like eight USB ports in the back of the computer, some of those are tied together over a host controller on your motherboard or on a daughter card. And you can overtax those resources uh, with the cameras. So they recommend if you can if you can figure it out, it's a maximum of two sensors per host controller for your USB 2, and they would not recommend more than one camera for USB 2.0. So USB 3.0, you can use two cameras, and USB 2.0, um, one on USB 2 is the best way to set up three cameras currently. Uh, I think some people just they think that they can use a USB splitter and... And, and with a power adapter and just get plugged all three or four cameras into one USB, uh, that's going to overburden the host controller. Mm. Last story. Let's circle back to Disney. Circle Vision. All right. So um, hmm? this is something, you know, when we talk about VR, there's a, a, a line between room scale and, and or like real VR spatial um, presence, right, and 360 video. Right. Um, 360 video really isn't VR, um, but they use similar technology. You're, you're still using the same headset in a lot of cases to enjoy both the experiences. At Disney, I saw what I thought to be the the best use of a 360 video system, mm. and it was something that was invented in 
the 1960s. Uh, it's called Circle Vision. Um, and do you remember going to E3 back in the day and EA would have that booth with a, um, with a video screen that would go 360 all around you? Yes. Uh, this is technology that's basically like that. They, f- they film these 20-minute long videos, documentary video series, touring different... It was at Epcot. They had one at uh, the China Pavilion, the French Pavilion, and the Canadian Pavilion. Uh, these 20-minute long films, basically. And they were filmed with these special camera rigs that were essentially film film rig... The film rig equivalent of a 360 GoPro camera setup with you know how you would have six or 12 GoPros arranged and stitched the image together. And here, the stitching done in the 60s and 70s, there was no stitching. It was just using uh, nine projectors, um, projecting images from every side, and you'd have to have a place for the projector, so the circle vision system actually didn't have seam, or had seams. It wasn't a seamless image all the way across. If you Google circle vision, you'll see images. The very first image shows you. Uh, there's about maybe a foot, because um, they're massive screens. Think of them still as theater-sized screens. Four by, uh, four by three or one by one. But uh, there's about a foot with seam between each of the uh, the screens. But what this that seam allowed it to do, allow the video, the directors in the video to do was to frame these 180 degree or 360 degree videos in a way that focused my attention on the subject and also allowed them to edit a movie so it didn't always have to be this 360 experience. I've watched a, a fair amount of 360 videos in you know in Google Cardboard and in, in VR, and I think videographers are still figuring out how to shoot and edit those videos. Um, for the vast majority of time, you don't pay attention to what's above you. There's nothing. There's not a lot happening above you, and there's not happening a lot happening below you. So I believe that having the images cropping the top and bottom and having this kind of circle vision, this this ring of screens around you frames your documentary in a way where you're not necessarily immersed. You don't feel like you're in that environment, but you're getting this kind of IMAX plus view of, of, a, of a scene mm-hmm. that's still immersive and it gives you a wider, a, a wider canvas to tell a story. And it also allows you to change focal lengths. I thought this closed down a while ago. No, they still have them. Holy crap. Did you see the camera? The yeah. camera is pretty amazing. It's, oh my God. And they filmed these in the 60s. It's, and it's all film. It's like eight right? film cameras all mounted to a center thing, and they're yeah. pointed vertically upwards right. to a mirror right. that uh, reflects it at 45 degrees. Yep. That's awesome. It's, isn't that awesome? Yeah. Uh, and there are actually some behind-the-scenes images where the directors, they filmed, like, to make these mini-documentaries, which are 15 to 20 minutes long, uh, they filmed like a hundred different scenes and then picked like 20 of them. So they edited, they had way more footage than they ended up using so they could actually edit down. I think a lot of problems with 360 video right now, and especially drone photography right now, is because it's so tough to make to make those videos, you only have so much battery life, so much to shoot. People are using, they're editing based on what they have already. Like you're, you're using, you have to use everything you have. You're not overshooting. It's not as plotted out as, as what they did here, where you can. They they actually storyboarded, you know, a hundred different shots and then edited something together. You saw this at Tomorrowland. Is that uh, where Epcot. It was? Epcot. Oh. Yeah. Um, 
The thing that the seams actually also do in terms of editing is allow the films not to all have to be 360 for every scene as well. So uh, you have your standard big, you know, landscape shot, right? So imagine like it's a shot with movement and movement is fine. Lateral movement with this was totally comfortable because it wasn't fully encompassing. You had the top and bottom cut off, right? You're just looking at TV um, movie screens. So like your lateral movement, you're flying above a glacier or something, right? And that's, and you want that to be immersive. So you make use of all nine screens around you. But then if you want to zoom in on something, uh, in VR and in 360 video, you can't change focal length normally because you can't zoom in because it's all, all around you, right? That's a, a limitation of cinematography. Here, because you have your screen split up to nine segments, you can have, you can then cut to a scene where you have the center image is zoomed in and then you're, you're tight of tight shots, nine tight shots for details around different things. Um, or, or just three videos that are, are uh, repeated around. When you're in it, is it dark all around? It's or dark all around. Okay, so there's no lighting to point you, like it, ambient lighting that helps you direct your no, experience. And, but because of the the seams, you have natural framing. Mm -hmm. So you would always know where your subject was because it would always be in the center of one of the screens. You would never have it in the seams. And I know filming 360, a lot of people worry about, okay, what if my subjects caught in between the edges of the lenses and the stitching is weird and you have these people, like here, they built in that problem into their filming technique, into their projection technique. So you would never have that problem because yeah. they, they would frame for that. Um, they compensate for it. And so it's, it's not about the same kind of version of putting you in that spot and making you feel like you're standing in that place. It's giving you a bigger canvas but using the limitations of their filming technique to actually help with the storytelling. And I found that incredibly um, compelling. Testing this week. Hey, what have you guys been testing? What if I told you everything you know about wiring is about to change? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Um, Imagine a world? I have, uh, you know, I saw Adafruit carry this stuff. It's silicon wire. Um, it's, it's the, I'm sorry, the sheathing around the wire is covered in silicon. And it, has, it just changes everything uh, about wiring as far as I'm concerned. I love it. I've been making a few um, projects recently where I have to bundle everything together, bend a lot of wires, and more often than not, if you do that with small projects, the wires break off their solder points or the, the wires themselves start to fray. And this wiring is just so manipulable, and uh, it's just very, very um, easy to, to work with, and um, I highly recommend it. I found it. You can get it on Amazon for a relatively cheap amount. And get uh, There's two packs of five in different colors. Um, what gauge? All different gauges, oh. uh, anything you want. Um, I think I, I got uh, 26 gauge, uh, but there's anything you need up there, and it's all very reasonably priced. Uh, if you do any kind of small wiring projects, do yourself a favor. This is like getting the, the right tool for the job. So it's, Sean actually picked this out as one of his favorite things, I think, two years ago. Oh, yeah. He mentioned this, and it felt like in the future, it's like the fiber optics of wiring. Um, like the way the, they bundle differently, they flow differently. Yeah. You, you lose the rigidity, right, when you when you use them, so you can't like bend them around creases. Well, that's solid the same core. Way. Yeah, you'd, you'd normally, like wires that hold their 
shape. Mm. That's mm-hmm. solid core wiring. Um, this is strictly stranded core wiring. Mm, okay. Uh, and stranded core in general doesn't hold its shape anyway. So no, it's not for that, and it's not for sh- shoving it into a breadboard either. But if you if you want to manipulate the wire and you know have a lot of flexibility, literally and figuratively, uh, check it out. Very cool. Uh, I came back from my trip and I found something I ordered on Amazon that finally arrived, and I love it. It's a um, charging stand for the Apple Watch, and it looks like. Have you seen this, Jeremy? I'm just looking at it now. It this looks is look hilarious. Look at this, Jeremy. Yeah. It looks like a tiny uh, Macintosh. I love it, but it's that's been on Thingiverse for about a year now. This one, I, yes, and I, I know that. This is, um, it's rubber, so it's really easy to put and remove your um, your charging cable. I bet so. So worth, worth the 15 bucks. That's good. You could also print your own, absolutely, and paint your own. Yeah, someone put a screenshot of an old Mac OS on their watch and then oh. installed it in there and said, that's how I want to look at my watch forever. <laughs> <laughs> you could just buy a small OLED screen and a, and a controller. Right. That's and, not, actually, I like this idea. Oh. This is totally ridiculous, and I support it fully. All right. Um, and then uh, I borrowed uh, Joey's Sony A6500 that he's been testing. He's been using it for uh, a couple of video shoots. Um, I borrowed he used it in a ping pong cannon one day yeah, build. Yeah. Um, and so he's actually going to be reviewing that. Uh, but I found its autofocus capabilities highly impressive. Yeah, that's what it's known for. Yeah, it's, it uh, did that. Your typical have a have a puppy run at you and take pictures, and most of the shots were in focus. It, it beats all the A7s in that regard. Yeah, I hate this. As somebody that was like almost ready to buy the A6000, I hate hearing about like the improvements along that line. Well, it's it's because it's, it's, it's expensive. Like, here's another few. I think yeah. even the A6000 beats the A7. It's all good. All right. Uh, anything else you guys been testing? Uh, cold medicine, right? Uh, yeah. Oh man, Mucinex. Yeah, but uh, the off, you know, off-brand stuff. Multivitamins for me. Okay. I hope you guys feel better then. Um, we'll be back next week with a uh, another uh, podcast. Still entitled is on a little bit of a hiatus right now while Adam is on tour. But once he gets back, or not on tour, he's traveling and then going on tour. Um, but we're gonna. Um, we're going to start recording once he gets back. Do you think he's going to do any of those um, uh, road diaries that he's done in the past when he's been on tour? Uh, I don't know. Um, he's definitely going to be tweeting a lot. I just don't know. Um, I, I hope so, because I really loved it when he described like you know all the different things he does in different cities. Yeah. yeah. I thought that was really clever. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, we have some videos this week. Uh, the ping pong machine gun cannon that you referenced, Kishore, that video one day build is up on the site. Uh, and um, we have another build going up next week um, that Adam did for his Secret Santa. So oh. check that out. Not yeah. bad. All right. Um, so thanks for everyone for joining us this week. Thank you guys. Of course, you can find Jeremy and Kishore online at Jareware and at Science Quiche, respectively. I've, I've, I've apologized to anyone following me on Twitter. I have a very resist mentality going right now. Don't apologize for that. A lot of people I follow on Twitter have gone from their typical MO to resist mentality. I'm hoping to get back to normal a little bit next week. Well, let's hope something, we'll have more positivity in world events that would lead that to happen. Um, and of course, you can find us at Tested.com or our YouTube channel. Thank you for watching if you, if you watch us on YouTube. Um, and we have an outro this week. Another one from Je- Hi there, I didn't see you. Tested. Justin, a.k.a. Speed. Did you 
walk around the house like this, like holding your chin a I little bit. I put on my Lennon glasses. Yeah, I made everyone call me Steve. See ya. Uh, the correct answer to the best screensaver <laughs> is Hyperspace by Terry Welsh of the really slick screensavers. Oh. No doubt. <laughs>